Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Man, that was intense. I was crying in the middle of this podcast. Honestly, Jay, were you crying in the middle of this podcast, or did you tear up a little bit? Were you? Oh, I did. Like, I feel so bad for him. Like at some point, it's like I'm watching a drama show, you yeah, know, like a Game of Thrones or some type of thing. I'm like, uh, uh, did I, did I accidentally committed those fraud before, or you know what I mean? Yeah. Most important lesson is, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Yes. So we got Craig Stanlin on. He was in in jail and talked about it. Talked about kind of the life transformation he went through both before, during, and after. And we got all the details out of him about how and why and what happened to everybody and everything in his life while he was going through this. I'll let him tell the story himself, but it's an intense story. The only reason I have a landline is the halfway house requires you to have a landline. So you have an ankle bracelet on and they can track you via GPS, but they still every single night from two to four in the morning, they call you and you, you have to pick up. Wait, but that's going to affect the quality of your sleep. Like, how do you not, how do you get like normal sleep during this period? You don't, you, you don't. It, it, I would go to sleep just dreading knowing that that phone call was going to come in. It was what just, if you slept so heavily that you slept through the phone call? That's a great question. So actually, the, the landline got knocked out one night because of a storm. So they, and I didn't know that they do this, they sent a signal to the ankle bracelet, and it sends a vibration through my ankle, a really hard vibration through my ankle at three in the morning, shoots me straight up out of bed. And I was like, what the hell is this? And so I call them, and they're like, you're not home. I am home. No, you're not. We get into an argument back and forth. So log into the system. You can see on the GPS, I'm home. Well, you didn't call from your landline. And it almost became a really significant issue of them thinking that I was, quote unquote, escaping. So that's why I have a landline in my house. Oh, my gosh. And like, wait, so how did you ultimately convince them that you weren't escaping? They, they did log on and see through the, uh, through the GPS that but I was GP- back home. Oh, the GPS is on the ankle bracelet. Correct. Why wouldn't that be like their automatic response, which is to 
I mean, okay, hypothetically, you could disconnect the ankle bracelet in in some extreme way, and so it's not 100% accurate, which is why they do the phone call. So why did they trust then when they use the GPS the second time, you know, to, to see where you are? My understanding is if you actually mess with the ankle bracelet off, you cut it, it alerts them immediately. So why didn't they just rely on that to begin with? They they don't because I think it's more of an effort for them to log into the system than it is just to make their series of phone calls every night. Man. I think there is, a, there, yeah, there's, there's one guy that was basically in charge of all the... Um, the home confinement people. And he was super nice. He was really, really cool, but he was a little bit lazy with his job. You know, I worked upstairs and he wouldn't come upstairs to check on me. He said, can you come to my car? You know, so I would go to, the, I would go to his car and, you know, there was one time he goes, what were you doing on 23rd street? And I was like, yeah, 23rd street. I live on 23rd street. He's like, no, you were in Manhattan. I said, no, I live on 23rd street in Brooklyn. And he, he had to then open up the computer which was a big deal for him. And he goes, oh yeah, yeah, you were on 23rd Street in Brooklyn. He goes, I just saw 23rd Street and I didn't pay attention. I just assumed it was Manhattan. And this is the guy who's in charge of everybody on home confinement. So wait, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the whole story in a second, but how long were you in the halfway house? It was a total of six months. Four of them, I was actually living in the house and then two were on home confinement with the ankle bracelet. Where was home confinement? Home confinement was in Brooklyn was in Brooklyn. So the halfway house is in the right outside the Dumbo neighborhood in Brooklyn. And then I'm, uh, I live probably 15 minutes away from there. And like, what would, like, how far were you allowed to go away from the halfway house? Like you got to go for errands and groceries and work and so on, or you just have to be at the halfway house at night. So there's actually a, um, they have a, a bank of computers and you will log on and fill out um, a pass requirement. So there's a pass for the church, there's a pass for the gym, there's a pass for the pharmacy, social security office, DMV, uh, the gym. You can actually go to the gym, you can do laundry, and you can do work. So you pick whatever pass it is, and each pass has a set time frame to it. So the pharmacy or the store is two hours. The gym, I believe, is two hours. Church was two hours. Work, you have upwards of 12 hours. And so you would, you would submit your request. It had to be approved by two people. When you go to leave the halfway house, there's a very formal process. You just can't walk out the door. Stanland Craig leaving to go to work. They confirm that my pass is okay. I sign an electric pad signing out. And then you have to be obviously on time when you come back in. And that is a whole process. They buzz you in the door. You've usually got to wait online, especially if you're coming after work and there's, you know, everybody else is coming in as well. They search all your stuff. You know, they go through your bag. They frisk you and they give you a breathalyzer. And a couple times a week, they're, they will administer a, um, a pee test, urine test, to check for drugs. And what if um, you had a girlfriend that you were visiting? Is that possible? It, so when you are technically, yes. So when you are at the halfway house, those four months that I was at the halfway house getting those passes, there's no bracelet on that. So I would, you know, I'm going to now admit this on air. There would be times where I said that I was going to the store and I would come home just to be, you know, to be in my apartment, to just get away from things and just have some relaxing time. Uh, my boss was incredible. He would be like, put in a pass for work. And if anybody calls me, I'll say that you're at work. So there were times where I had eight hours to myself. But potentially from the ankle bracelet, they could tell if you're, if they really were like on top of things, they could, they could 
follow the GPS all the time of the ankle bracelet and see when there's a disconnect. There's so so during the, when you um, when I was living in the halfway house, there was no ankle bracelet that came when I went to home confinement for those two months. So they had no way of tracking whatsoever. And what you had to do when you when you get to the pharmacy, let's say, you know, you're allowed a cell phone with no camera and no Internet. So you had the old flip phone, but everybody would sneak in iPhones anyway. But when you got to your destination, you had to call in Stanley Craig, I'm at the pharmacy. And they would say, okay, and they'd hang up. When you're leaving the pharmacy, you have to do the same thing. Stanley Craig leaving the pharmacy on my way back. Oh, man. All right. Well, let's, let's rewind. There's a lot to go over here. <laughs> Craig Stanley, convicted felon. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. I appreciate it. Also author of the book, The Blank Canvas. Uh, is that on Amazon yet? It is not. I'm going to, I'm hoping to self-publish this year and I'm going to be launching a, uh, a crowdfunding campaign to help me with that process in a couple of weeks. Why do you need a crowdfunding campaign to do that? Like, why can't you just upload it to Amazon? I was thinking I wanted to do it uh, professionally. I want to do the professional self-publishing. So I was looking All at, right. I was looking at Scribe Media, Tucker's company. And, you know, I had a phone call with them. I really like what they do. And I, I thought that would be an interesting option for me. That's a, that's a great choice. And then also you've done a couple of uh, TED Talks and great YouTube videos. Uh, I re listened recently to the one you did. I'm going to bring it up right now. Um, How I Learned My Greatest Worth in Federal Prison, TEDx North Adams. I feel like you've did other talks. I did. I've done a couple other podcasts. But in terms of any um, any other talks, the TED was that was it. That was my one, and that's something that I, I hope to do more of. Not just you know, not just TEDs, but paid speaking you know gigs. Yeah, it was a great talk, very inspirational, and uh, I was very happy to see you do that. We've known each other quite a few years, and very happy with everything everything you're doing. So tell me, t let's just reel it all the way back, and your and your TED talk, in a weird way. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people relate to it. Uh, but I'll let you tell the story, but I'll, I'll tell you what resonated with me is this, this feeling of, if, if I might extrapolate from the talk, this feeling of your self-worth is somehow externally motivated. People won't like me unless certain things in the outside world, as opposed to my internal world, certain things in the outside world are happening. And sometimes you could be literally a prisoner to that in the, in the, irony is, is being a prisoner to your ideas of self-worth could potentially lead you as it did in your case to being a real prisoner. It, it really didn't. You nailed it on the head. It was just the constant chasing of things and not only the buying of the things, but my ability to buy those things. You know, the idea that I could walk into any jewelry store. I, I liked nice watches. You know, I'd wear $12,000 Panerai's and I could walk into a jewelry store and buy one without really thinking about it. And I loved the fact that I could do that. What, why is that? Like, what, what, what were you doing for a living? Like before, before you got into the behavior that got you in trouble? I was a senior enterprise account manager for a major technology company, and we were a reseller of Cisco Systems. So I dealt with all the largest financial institutions in the world. I had all the biggest banks. I had all the biggest hedge funds. Um, you and I were chatting on the IG Live the other day. SAC Capital was one of my clients. Yeah. Why couldn't they just buy directly from Cisco? Cisco likes a partner model. They, if, if you spend a significant, if you spend a wicked amount of money, you have a direct uh, relationship with Cisco. But Cisco prefers having a partner model because they think it um, disperses their sales staff. They don't have to have as many 
salespeople. You know, they let That's other people, point. they let other people take that on. So you would have like 50 or hundred clients and they don't have to have to deal with a hundred different customers. They just have to deal with you. Correct. Exactly. That's exactly. And I had, um, I had about tw anywhere from 19 to 21 accounts was, uh, was my account base. And like I said, 99% of them were all financial. I had one healthcare, uh, thrown into the mix. In that kind of job, would you make like a percentage of sales? It was all, it was commission based with a nice, um, six figure base salary. So wow. it was, you know, and I did my, my best year of sales. I generated 21 million. Wow. So what, what did you make that year personally? It was, um, you know, it's not as much cause it's all, it goes on the margin, but I was hovering around uh, half a mil. That's great. Yeah. And uh, how did you learn how to sell? I, I have no idea. I'll tell you how I got into it. I didn't even, I fell into it. I was a personal trainer and I became really friendly with my clients. And one of my clients, she and I and her husband, we'd go out for drinks all the time on the weekend. And one time we're sitting there, we're chatting and everything. And her, her husband says to me, he says, Craig, how much you make a year? And I told him, I said, I make 75,000. And he goes, that's, that's good. Wow. It's more than I thought for a trainer. Good for you. How would you like to make four times that? I said, I'm listening. I said, okay. He said, go talk. Very tempting. You're very tempting. He said, go talk to a friend of mine. He didn't tell me about anything and I didn't ask any questions. So I go to this office in Stanford, Connecticut. I meet with this guy who's 6'2". He's dressed all in black, looks like Johnny Cash. He's very intimidating. And, he, and he, I sit down across from him from his big giant desk. And he says, okay, Sandy sent you. Uh, tell me about yourself. And I look at him, I said, Rick, I said, I don't know what you people even do here. I said, I don't even get it. I know it's something with technology, but I'll be honest, I can barely turn on my own computer. There's two things I know about myself. Number one is I'm wickedly intelligent. Number two, I will work my ass off for you. And he looked at me and he goes, you're hired. I said, okay. So I took a, I took a huge pay cut. I, I went from 75 to 32 on the books as an inside sales rep. And, and I was so fortunate that there were two of us that were hired around the same time. And there were two account managers that were looking for people to support them. And I got, I got the good guy. I got this just gregarious amazing mentor who, who brought me from the ground up. And it, I was so fortunate to, to have this guy. And that's how I learned how to sell was through him. Well, what did he like? Give me a technique. Like what was a good technique that surprised you? Like, oh, cause I'm, I would be thinking that a company, you know, a financial firm, I would say to them, listen, speed is money, right? So your, your, your ability to connect quickly, to where the money is, which is at the exchange, means you get in front of the line compared to the other billion people trying to get to the money. Here's all our benchmarks. Happy to talk to you about it. This is the fastest equipment. You will make more money with this equipment than any any other equipment. But you nailed it on the head. That's actually, that's pretty much primarily how we sold things. He, he would take that approach and he would bring like the, the nuts and bolts and we would have engineers that would help us on you know, the sales calls that really dealt with the whiteboarding and got deep into, you know, the technology, but he would really just humanize the entire experience. He was just a nice guy. He didn't push. He, one of his techniques would more, more or less be like, I'm going to make your job easier and I'm going to make you look good because when you install this and you decrease the latency for your trades and your traders are then happy, you know, that's going to, that's going to look good for you. And that's really his approach. He just, he was not slimy. He was not pushy. He just was really, he was very warm. 
you know, he's just very warm. He knew everybody's history, knew everybody's backstory. How are the kids? How'd your kid do on the math test? You know, he was just that guy. And that's, that's what I learned from him. And I really like that because the other account manager I could have been assigned to was really the slimy kind of guy. And what would he do differently? He would yell, he would scream, he would push it, he would push things. You're stupid if you don't upgrade. You know, I mean, he would just go that route. I mean, this is, this is a no brainer. Why would you not upgrade? You're, you're, you're running in, you know, ancient times, your competitors are going to beat the shit out of you. You know, he would just go that so route. I would think that the nicer guy would do better. Right. But, but who did actually better? I don't know. Nicer guy. Nicer guy was number one in the company. Okay. Yeah. He was number one in the company. And then he decided to leave for a different opportunity. And I'd been at the company now for, I think it was about five years on that inside role. And when he was leaving, there was, it was real. I was really lucky. They said, there's nobody else we can give the accounts to. You are embedded in these accounts. So wow. I, I inherited all of his accounts. That, that's great. So, okay. So you're doing well, you're on your way to riches. You could probably even start your own firm eventually, you know, and not just sell Cisco, but you could sell any, anything else that might be, you know, fast or, or useful for these hedge funds. Maybe you could even join one of these hedge funds, but at some point, what do you think triggered in you where you needed more? Like you said, were you married this entire time? Did you get married? Where did you move? Like, did you, how did you change your life? when you were making between the time you were making 70,000 a year to the time you were making half a million a year? It was, so I was in a relationship and we, we started, you know, I started buying more things, but I was, I'm still, I was fairly under control. It wasn't really that need that, that want didn't kick in at that point. And then the relationship just came to an end. And really, I don't know, but I'm not going to say the relationship came coming to an end was the cause I had, my dad actually left the person I was in a relationship for the woman I ended up marrying. And at that point, really, it was just, we had so much fun in the beginning of the relationship. Just, you know, I worked from home. So I had this flexibility as well. As long as I had my phone on me, I could work from home. So we were, we were in that beginning dating stage of going out and going out to fancy restaurants. And I was just whining and dining. And it became this, this thing that felt really good to do. And I just was, chasing, 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 and it just grew exponentially. And then really one of the catalysts for it was, so I got this almost call it like an addiction that's going up and the margins on what I was selling were decreasing and my customers weren't buying quite as much. So my commission checks are decreasing. My addiction is increasing and it was a really crappy equation. So I had, I had because I started at the, at the bottom, I learned how the entire system worked. I knew how everything worked. And I started putting the pieces together to what would eventually get me arrested by the FBI. And so what, what were those pieces? Like what, so, you, so, okay. So I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to imagine, like, um, I guess, so you're selling these high priced items to these hedge funds. Uh, let's say they would order 20, special souped up routers plus maintenance. And maybe there were other companies that you were in between. So you could make up a company in between and charge for that on top of the maintenance. I don't know. I'm just guessing. That, that'd be an interesting one. That's, that's a good one. I'll, I'll tell you what I did. So using a router is, an, is a, the perfect example. When 
you have warrant, a warranty on the router. It covers everything in that router. So the different, you know, the different um, cards that slide into it. If one of those cards fails, Cisco will overnight you a brand new card. And all you have to do is send the, the dead one back to them. So I figured out that I could get a warranty on a box. I bought a bunch of used boxes. Oh, oh this is great. Uh, l- let me guess. You get the warranty. You tell Cisco, Cisco, this one's dead. Send a new one. You personally get the new one. You sell it, you know, on some market for Cisco parts and it's brand new. So you're getting pretty much top price. And then you buy a broken one uh, somewhere else and you get the spread on that all day long. That's exactly what I did. That is, Boom. that is exactly what I did. <laughs> it's that easy. Send me to jail now. <laughs> it's that where, easy. Where, but how would you buy, who would be selling a broken one? It was, it was used ones on eBay. So it was used one okay. on, used ones on eBay. I started with used ones, but then I realized I could also increase my margin when I would buy third party. And that's when where you could it, buy um, their third party manufacturers of Cisco equipment. So I figured out that I could buy it was, you know, an OEM and it was not um, Cisco branded, but it was still the same card. So how did they like like it would seem like we, if I'm at Cisco, it would be weird to me. Oh, this guy, Craig Stanley, he just broke six thousand uh, you know, parts, uh, that seems odd. So what I did was I bought, um, God, I can't remember how many routers I had total, but I had maybe 14 of them. So I had 14 different contracts and I created, um, fake company names. So there'd be a few routers under each company name and then different aliases underneath each company name with different email addresses. Um, you know, different, I don't think I had different phone numbers. I can't remember if I did that and different. Yeah, you got to have different phone numbers and different physical addresses. So I used the UPS store. So I had different um, UPS stores. I had some stuff shipped directly to my house. I had some shipped to various UPS stores and my wife had just started a business. So I was sending stuff to her business as well. And she wasn't like, Craig, shouldn't this be going to like JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs? Why is it going to my beauty salon or whatever it was? So she- <laughs> It was a vintage furniture store and she, she would ask all the time, she would say, is this, are you sure this is right? And I would just lie and say, it's, you know, I'd blow her off and just say, it's fine. It's fine. You know, why, why are you asking me? It's totally so fine. You, you would say this is, this is like, I'm, I'm guessing again, I'm putting myself in, in, in your mind that you would say, um, uh, it's such a hassle for me to go up to the UPS store and wait in line and deal with that. I'd rather just send it to someplace easy for me to get, like if you can even get it on the weekends, whatever. It was, it was, I'm, I pretty much just said, I just need another place to send it to, but it's fine that it's going to your business. Okay. Yeah. So you kept it, you kept it low, low information. You didn't, you, you kept the lying minimal, but it was like that one solid lie that you kept consistent. I over and over again kept that lie. I mean, I, I tooth and nail and just fought against it. And, you know, that's eventually she she left me and that was, you know, I lied to her and I, I don't blame her. Well, she left you. Uh, well, 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 we'll, we'll get, get to that in a yeah. second. Yeah, yeah. How much money were you making per uh, router you were doing or per a piece of equipment that you were doing this with? It wasn't the net profit wasn't huge um, per piece, but I was doing so many cases that it added up. And I remember at sentence like in your best year with this best year. Well, I did it for just, I did it for 10 months and I made 130,000. Okay. So, and then 
were you planning on reporting the 130,000 as taxes to taxes? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, somehow I, I, I knew in my brain, I, I, so it was weird when I first started it, when I first hit that enter button to start the fraud, I didn't, this is going to sound so strange, but I, I knew it was wrong and my heart told me not to do it, but I didn't know it was illegal. Like I didn't know what mail fraud actually was. I just knew that it was wrong. Um, and then when the dollar amount that I was taking because the list price of the equipment, you know, was far in excess of the 130 that I made off of it, you know, um, but it was, you know, when I broke the million dollar mark, then I knew I was doing something really, really wrong. And I knew, I, I knew to claim taxes. Oh, oh you mean in terms of, in terms of like total, like, so your profit was like a hundred something thousand, but in terms of total revenues that were coming in illegally for, for your whole bunch of businesses, it was, it was topping a million. It was. So I was actually calculating the, the list price of the equipment. So what the damage was to Cisco and it had broken the million dollar mark, which is, which there's something interesting about that. Fortunately, because you Cisco usually sells it about it, let's just say a 40% discount. It was 40% off of list, which brought the total damages to Cisco under a million dollars, which had a huge impact on my prison sentence. If oh I broke gosh. the if I broke the million dollar mark in actual damages, that would have been a, a much different ballpark of prison sentence. So, so let's figure this out. So, so what was, did you have to buy a product initially for yourself in order to then later on say it was dead or how did you start it off? It was, I, the first thing I did was acquire the routers. Then I acquired for yourself personally, for, not for your clients for, for myself personally. Correct. And I, I acquired the routers and I had, I had some that were given to me by clients. They said, these are old. We don't want them anymore. Get them out of our storage room. So I had them and I realized I could buy warranties on those as well because they were no longer covered and I could, you know, I could repurpose them underneath my yeah. name. Now that strikes me as legal. Like that could be a legal business, which is you go to all these financial institutions that your clients and say, Hey, I'll pay you for all your broken routers. Yeah. You, you're, you're messing. You're, and you can be honest, I'm, you're missing out on some upside if we do this whole thing, but these are broken routers. Uh, I'll buy them from you. And then you could, uh, do your thing and take the spread between what you paid and what you would have made off of your, let's call it your system. There, there are people who do sell use Cisco and do precisely that. They will go into, you know, these major corporations and buy in bulk, you know, a hundred, 200 routers. And then just That's legal, completely, completely legal. It's like, if I go to a disaster area, like an earthquake or a flood or whatever, and I just buy all the cars that are lying around that were ruined, that nobody wants to, you know, take to the junkyard and then, you know, fix them up and sell them used or whatever, whatever my opportunities are cash in on the insurance, whatever I, I paid for them so I could do what I want. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, it's like a little bit of arbitrage, I guess you're just, you know, going in, it's yeah. like going to a tag sale and buying something and then putting it up on Amazon. Given that, and given that it could be an enormous, enormous, like $50 million a year business. Why didn't you think in that way? And I, and I get it. Like it's not, you weren't thinking in that way to begin with. So it makes sense. But like looking back on it now, you could have created like a 50 million a year business doing that. I could have created something much different. There's no doubt about it. And it was, it was so, it was so weird. Cause also at the same time, you know, I, I wanted to keep buying things and I wanted to maintain that lifestyle. And then I'm, I'm not getting the paychecks and equal to that was this, you know, on your, your, 
podcast with Mark Devine, your intro to that, man, that really resonated with me when you were just talking the heart and the mind not communicating. I really have always wanted to start my own business. And in my warped way of not thinking clearly, I had started my own business doing this illegal right. activity, you know, made me feel like, wow, I really created something. So I wasn't thinking of even at that point of other ways to expand it. You know, to me, it was a but, success. Right. So, so it's very interesting. So I think this, this concept, and, and obviously we haven't even gotten to any one of your, your story yet. Cause, but I think this concept of the heart and mind communicating is so important for not only entrepreneurship, but relationships and for health and for how you live your life. It, it like, for instance, when you started describing to me the scheme, I'll call it, um, you know, I could, I could get it. I could see where the money was. I could see where the arbitrage was, but it didn't, I didn't feel that, oh, this is exciting. It just felt like, okay, this is like math. Like this is how you, you, you rung up some numbers. But then when you start to think about how it could be a real business and how it could scale, I mean, you could go to every single company in the country that buys the routers and you know, you know who all the customers are because you're in the sales business for it. Suddenly now it's a legit 50, even a hundred million a year business. And then I felt like I felt it like my heart and mind were talking. Cause that's something I wouldn't want to do it. Cause there's a lot of hustling involved and I like to podcast and sit in my <laughs> apartment by myself. But, uh, but that's something that someone could do even now and make like a hundred million a year business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they definitely could. And you know, <laughs> I'm going to say you now saying this is so crystal clear to me. And I I'm like, I'm, I'm regretting and kicking myself in the ass that I didn't think beyond what I was doing and actually no, create something okay. legit. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that sort of business sense. I don't know what to call it because, uh, like I would not have, when I first started my first business, looking back at it, I realized, oh my gosh, there was like so much money I left on the table legally because there were so many other business models I could have done, but I just didn't understand business. I understood sales, but I didn't understand business. There's a whole meta skill to business that I didn't know. And it took like 20 years to, to learn, to, 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 to figure out the, the, let's say business is a language between the heart and the mind. I maybe knew other languages, but not the business language. Actually, I really didn't know any of the languages, but <laughs> now, now I do. So, so you're, you're doing this along, you're, you're doing it for 10 months. Um, was there anything that made you think, and you knew it was wrong. You knew it was not just gray, but slightly on the other side of gray. Like you, you could probably rationalize, oh, well, Cisco's this $200 billion company. Who cares? Like it's not real. They're not really getting hurt and I need the money and no one's ever going to know. And maybe these are legit businesses that I'm setting up. Who knows? Like there's probably ways you're talking yourself into it, to, it but it's on the other side of gray. It's illegal. And even if you don't know what the laws are, people have a, you don't need to know the law to know when something's legal or illegal. Um, and so you, 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 you figured it out. It was legal, but did you ever get this fear? Uh oh, they're closing in on me. Like, did your boss ever, ever ask questions or the Cisco salespeople or whatever? There were, and they're so crystal clear. Now there were some red flags. There were some definitive red flags. And just speaking about that heart and mind, I remember I was either putting clothes into the dryer or taking clothes out of the dryer. And I, that's when I realized I had broken that list price over a million dollars. And it felt like a heart attack. My, my heart tightened up when I did the math in my head. And I just said, oh my God, this is so 
I'm in so deep. I, I'm in so deep and I, I don't know how to stop. And I just ignored it. And that was a massive red flag. Can, can I ask you some questions about that? I'm sorry I interrupt. You know, I'm, I, no, I, 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 I know your MO, so yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I get really curious. So let's just say at that point, um, you went to a lawyer and a lawyer has to keep it confidential, right? Like they, unless you murdered somebody or whatever, they kind of have to keep it as like lawyer, is, is it true client lawyer privilege? They're not allowed to say anything or report you to the law? As far as I know, yes. And I think it is if you um, are planning on doing something really, you know, catastrophic, then they then they can say something or you or if you did murder somebody, I it's a little bit of gray area, but this they could have, it would have been totally confidential. And, and you were going to, and my plan is you, you would have stopped anyway. Let's say you went to a lawyer and said, look, I'm doing something illegal. I've stopped doing it. I want to somehow come clean or at least to protect myself in the best way possible. What should I do? What do you think would have happened? Man, that's so hard to say. But part of me, the first thing that comes to my mind is I don't think I would have gone to prison. I think if I had faced it head on, I don't think that I would have, I don't think I would have gone to prison. They, they were already onto me. They were onto me about six months into it. Okay, so you were continuing your story, continuing your story. Um, so yeah, just thinking of the, the red flags, somebody at the UPS store, um, one of the workers there, he said, hey, you know, the um, a postal inspector came and was asking about you. Uh-oh. Right, exactly. And I... I would have flipped out right then. That's, you're over then. I was, it gave me a heart attack. And James, this is like, and this is embarrassing to have to admit this. I didn't stop at that point. I just said, okay, I'll stop using aliases and I'll put everything under my name. I said, oh, okay, it's just the aliases. That's that's what that's where the that's what's going on right now. I'll just put it under my name. It'll be okay. I was so delusional and so caught up in everything. It wasn't even close to thinking clearly. You know, it's 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 interesting. Like one time I knew this guy, he was on the board of directors of a company that acquired a company that I had sold. This was in 1998 or 1999. And I was talking to one of the other board members and he said to me, who introduced you to the company? And I said, oh, this guy, you know, Mr. So-and-so. And he, and he like got in a, his voice got a little lower and he started to almost like half whisper. And he's like, stay away from that guy. He's no good. And I'm like, what do you mean? And I'm like, just, he's no good. I don't ask me anywhere. He's no good. And then four years later, the FBI arrested, you know, the guy we were talking about. So probably the FBI had already been speaking to these other people but they were keeping it really quiet. Obviously he didn't know. And this guy was just warning me um, not to be around him, but they know like way in advance and they're talking to all the people around you is what I'm assuming you found out. So I found out one of the other red flags, but it didn't, it, this red flag didn't become clear until um, at sentencing. But one of the, so we were, my wife and I were, were regulars at so many of the really nice restaurants in Greenwich and Connecticut. And you know, we, I mean, regulars and we're spending $500, you know, per night on dinner, you know, with the wine wow. and everything like that. Right. It was, it was ridiculous. So they really knew us. And I remember this one, the manager came over and he was like, you know, it's, you know, it's interesting. You know, the FBI will actually come in and they'll, they'll ask for subpoenas about what people order for dinner. People have to be really careful. They have to really, they have to think about how they pay for things and what they're doing. It's guy was saying this to me and it didn't register whatsoever, but that so also, it was just like a warning. It was a warning. The manager of this restaurant was giving me a warning that flew right over my head. I had no idea. And he was protecting himself because he was saying, I say that to all, it was just an interesting story. I say that to many customers, like whatever, man, 
Like, so he was protecting himself a little bit, but he was warning you directly. He was, he was warning me directly. And it wasn't until, and I don't want to fast forward too much, but at sentencing, they actually itemized, listed the items that we would order at a restaurant. You know, Craig had the spaghetti bolognese and the popo appetizer, and they ordered this bottle of wine. And, you know, they also that, had- That popo, they'll get you every time on the popo. <laughs> the damn popo, that was, that's what brought it all down. Oh my God. And so, so during this time though, okay, even then, even if you, let's say you didn't go to a lawyer and let's say you just stopped. Okay. Let's say the, the moment that you had this heart attack about the million dollars, you're putting stuff in the laundry. Let's say you just stopped at that point. Would they have gotten you because it wasn't ongoing? So they couldn't really catch you in the act anymore. I mean, they just had mountains of evidence. They had mountains of evidence. So they could have very easily still gotten me. So what were they waiting for? Were they just trying to like wrap it all up into a case that their boss approved of and said, okay, let's arrest him? Exactly. That's exactly it. They just wanted a, a bulletproof case. So they just, you know, let me do what I was doing. Another one of those red flags that I'll throw in there was one of the Cisco um, TAC operators. He actually called me out on the number of cases on this one particular router. He said, wow, you know, this is, you know, I forget the number, but let's just say it's 12 cases in the past couple of months. That's, that's a lot. That's abnormal. And I, I asked, I said, is there a limit to how many cases that I can have? He said, no, I just find it abnormal. And that to me was also that an indication that, you know, when I call in or I do these things online, they can just see how many I've already called in on that one particular serial number. And what about your boss at work? They must have talked to him a little bit. I Well, they probably, they might've been guessing if he was in on it is the problem. You know, I'm curious about that. That I never found anything out if who they talk to at work. My boss never said anything to me. And my understanding is that my, my boss was completely caught off guard. Yeah, because he might've been in on it. They probably were trying to see if you were part of a bigger group too. That was probably part of their process. It was, it was a huge part of their process. And that was, um, a, that was the first question out of the FBI agent's mouth when I was in the back of the car with cuffs on. Were there any other red flags? So you listed three. And then my, my accountant, when I went to my accountant and I just said, hey, this is what I'm doing. He's like, oh, this is great. Your, your side business is doing really well. You know, good for you. And I explained what I was doing. And he just looked at me and he's like, that doesn't sound right. So you thought, you thought it was legal so much that you basically divulged it to your accountant. Like you really thought it was like in the gray and it wasn't in the black. Um, it's weird to say that it was both. I had one foot in both because my heart was just telling me that it was completely wrong. But then I would almost say like pure ego and wanting to keep it going and just knowing that it was allowing me to buy all these things and keep that lifestyle up. That was, it was almost like, um, it's almost like showing off to him. Like, Hey, this is what I'm doing. Because you could have said, Oh yeah, I have a, a side business also selling routers on the side. Big deal. Here it is. Right. But instead you gave like the details, which were illegal, but he probably knew it was illegal. Why didn't he warn you? Like, Hey, Craig, why don't we at least look at the laws for a second. I don't know. And I, I think, I mean, he just kind of, you know, he said, this doesn't sound right to me. Are you sure this is okay? And I just said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And then we just went back to, you know, filing the, uh, the taxes and just going through. Why, why didn't you Google the laws? Didn't even cross my mind, James. Didn't even I mean, cross my mind. I don't even know, like, I'm going to use Google right now. I don't even know what I would Google. Like, um, like it's such a weird thing. Like buy, you know, uh, fake faking warranties, legal, <laughs> uh, 
No, um, no. I mean, I don't even know what I would what I would Google here. Oh, so okay, wait, wait. Here's here's something. IPWatchdog.com contracts one hundred and one. A warranty is a stipulation that a certain fact in relation to the subject of contract refers to agreement to protect the recipient against loss if the fact becomes untrue. So, for instance, if the product breaks, there's the fact that the product should be working, and so something happens. But a breach that destroys the value of the contract for the non-breaching party, that could be a false representation and doesn't say it's an, uh, an imprisonment. You know, it doesn't say you could go to prison for this, but that would be the first clue to me in, in one second of Googling, 30 seconds of Googling. That would be the first clue to me that I could at least be in trouble. And then um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this, I'm sure, but what, what crosses the line between trouble and jail is the next question. But okay, so you're, you're, but you didn't yet feel nervous, right? You, you, you were getting these red flags. Nobody at work was raising their eyebrows at you, um, but there were a couple of small red flags and you yourself were starting to feel a little bit of, of fear uh, when you hit this million dollar mark. I guess the million dollar mark because it was starting to feel substantial enough that that someone might be someone might notice, right? You didn't know that a million dollar was also kind of a cliff for prison sentencing and and so on. Yeah, I had no idea about that. I had no idea that the million dollar mark was that's this huge step up in prison sentences. It just like you said, it just felt big. It just felt noticeable. It felt conspicuous. But nothing changed in your behavior at that point. Nothing changed in my behavior. I only stopped what I was doing because I had started a new job. One of our biggest competitors had wooed me away and I had started a new job and I wasn't going to jeopardize this new opportunity. And, th and this is a weird question, but, but it's relevant. Uh, I'm assuming in a business like this, to, to get you to move your quote unquote book of clients to them, they probably paid you in advance that you worked off. Like they probably paid you a nice like three or four year advance. No, they didn't. They didn't. It was just, it was a really nice base salary with a better commission structure. And I really, I'd been at the other company for 13 years. I didn't like the direction that the company was heading in. And I really, this other company was up and coming and they were kind of kicking our ass. And I said, I'm, I'm going over here. And around that same time, the, you know, so I had the new job, so I wasn't going to jeopardize it. And then my wife and I, we had one of those conversations, you know, both of us really weren't happy. You know, we weren't happy with how much we were spending and the life that we were living and how much we were drinking. We were just drinking in excess and, you know, we had grown away from each other. And we said, you know, we, I did the math of, you know, we we're spending, you know, what, four grand a month on going out to eat alone. And it was just like, we could be, we could be doing, having experiences and we could just be saving this and have comfort and, and not be, you know, cause I'm still making all this money but I was spending all of it. So every single month was a scramble to pay the Amex bill. You know, I was like, where am I going to get the money to pay the Amex bill? So I was like you said earlier, I was imprisoned by all this. And we had this really heart to heart that we were, we were going to start fresh. And she actually told me during this conversation, she's like, I had, I had about a month ago given us one year. And if things didn't change, I was going to leave you. And it was, you know, it was really hard to hear that. But you know, this, this was like this fresh start. And the second I stopped committing this fraud, it was such a weight off of my shoulders. It was like, it was such a relief. And you know, that was almost a red flag unto itself of how much of a relief I felt 
for not doing yeah. it. Yeah. But I guess you felt like, hey, if they haven't caught me yet, I'm probably free and clear. So why ruffle the feathers? Why go to a lawyer now? Why come clean now? There, and there, Yeah. And there was something like so simple-minded of me to be like, I stopped. It's all okay. So I'm innocent. I'm, yeah. yeah, exactly. I stopped. So I'm innocent. You know, all of the, the six months of, you know, or 10 months of activity with six months of them tracking me. Let's just play around with this for 30 more seconds. Like if you had gone to a lawyer and said, look, probably realistically, there was about half a million dollars worth of damage to Cisco. I really regret this. It was wrong. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. I maybe I, I, I haven't seen any red flags. Uh, what should I do? And the lawyer, I guess, has a couple choices. The lawyer could say, well, we can wait until they contact you because they'll probably contact you first. He said, or actually, if no, the lawyer would do this. The lawyer would probably say, look, you committed mail fraud because it went over state lines. I'll go to the FBI and I'll say I have a XYZ client, an anonymous client that would like to work this out. Can we work out a deal in advance? And then I will present to you my client. And the FBI might have contacted Cisco, done their research, you know, assuming they didn't know because you thought that they didn't know. The FBI could have reached out to Cisco, could have figured this out, um, could have had a phone call with you still anonymously. And your lawyer could have said, look, he'll make a balloon payment. He'll pay $50,000 now, and then I'll pay $2,000 a month. No jail time, but probation. And boom, that's it. I think that could have been a very, very viable scenario, actually. I really do think that if I had proactively done that, I don't think prison would have come into play. What, what would your wife have done if you had done that? Part of me would think, based on her personality, I would actually think she'd be really proud of me. I think she would be really proud of me, honestly. You know, I think it would be a hard pill to swallow, but I think it really would have just helped with that fresh start. And yeah, I think she would have admired the courage that that would have really taken. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one to think about. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb. 
But there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. 
Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Well, okay, so what happened next? <laughs> so this is this is uh, maybe where it gets even super interesting is I had started this new job. I was at the new job for two weeks and I was going into the, I was going into the office. I was down in Penn Plaza. So right by Madison Square Garden. And, you know, I, I say goodbye to my wife, um, give her a kiss at the door and, you know, see you later, drive down West Side Highway, pull into the garage, go up 37 floors to my office. And I pull out my phone. I'm getting, I'm getting set up at my desk and I put my phone on the desk and I see that I have one missed call and a voicemail. You know, and I, and I do that thing where you look at your phone and you go, how did I miss it? It was on me the entire time. So I put it up to my ear and I listened to it. And the message was, Mr. Stanlin, this is Special Agent McTiernan with the FBI. We are at your residence and have a warrant for your arrest. You need to call us and come home immediately or we will issue an arrest warrant with the federal marshals. Oh, my God. Yeah. Did you just jump out the window then? It was... It was as if my body became a vacuum. Um, I, I couldn't. I couldn't find any air. It was. It was hard to breathe. My stomach fell. Fell those thirty-seven floors. My heart tightened up. I, I thought, for some weird reason, I thought that everybody in the entire office heard that voicemail. I thought every single. I thought it was broadcast for everybody to hear, and everybody knows that the FBI wants me and that they're going to arrest me. It was sheer, utter panic. It's just, and I, I, I scrambled, I grabbed all my stuff and I, you know, I'm two weeks into this new job. I don't remember everybody's name. It's about 845 in the morning. So the office is at about half capacity. And I'm trying to think, what do I tell people? Why am I leaving the office that I just walked into, you know, 30 seconds ago? And do I tell them I'm sick? Do I tell them that I have a client meeting? And I think I just ended up muttering to somebody, oh, I forgot I have a client meeting. And I just, I ran out of there the whole time thinking that everybody was staring at me. And I was just wearing this scarlet letter, you know, with a neon sign over me saying, um, you know, felon. <laughs> Did anyone say, hey, is anything wrong? Like, were you red or? Nobody, people were pretty much head down, you know, heads down at their laptops yeah. at that point. So nobody really honestly was paying attention to me at all. You know, I didn't even have to come up with an excuse. I could have just, you know, walked out. And I, I take the 37, I take the, the elevator ride down those 37 floors. You know, I'm embarrassed to walk by the security desk. You know, I see the badge on the, the security shirt. And oh, for some yeah. reason, I'm like, they know, um, people know. I walk out onto, what is that, 8th Avenue. And there's sirens. It's the city and it's rush hour. So there's sirens. And I was just like, holy shit, they're coming for me. You know, I walked to my car. I'm embarrassed to get my car because I told the guy it was going to be nine or 10 hours or whatever it was. And here I am 15 minutes later collecting my car. And I get in and I just get to the West Side Highway and I'm panicked and I have no idea what I'm driving into. I'm just a nervous wreck. And, and my heart is, is literally telling me, it's like, I told you so. It caught up to you. And as I'm driving, I said, okay, let me, let me call my wife. And it took about seven rings before she actually picked up. And those were like some of the most excruciating rings. And the first words out of her mouth were, Craig, what's happening? And she, the heartbreak and the fear in her voice just 
cut through me like a knife and I couldn't explain to her what was happening because I had no idea. I had no idea what was happening. And I, I found out later what she actually had to endure. So the, the FBI, even though they were tracking me, they didn't know I started a new job. So they raided the house expecting that I was home because they were used to me working out of the house. So they came at about, I don't know, 8.30 or 8.40, knocked on the door. Uh, my wife and our dog, you know, run to the door to go see who's there. And she opens it up and there are 15 federal agents with assault rifles, shotguns and pistols um, all aimed at her face and her chest. And they said, you know, we're executing a search warrant. Here it is. And they just stormed into the house and started started searching. So I found that out, you know, obviously later, that's what she had to endure. She didn't want to, when we were on the phone, she didn't want to go into any details because there were agents everywhere. She didn't know anything. You know, I kept her really out of it. You know, she would, when she would ask, is this okay? And I said, it's fine. She knew no details. She knew no anything, but she wasn't comfortable saying what was actually happening in the room or in the house. And so, you know, I hang up with her and then my father is an attorney. He's in a patent attorney, but I was like, let me, let me call my father. Um, I call him and I explain it. He said, what's going on? And I, you know, I told him, I was like, oh, it's probably just a misunderstanding. You know, I had this, you know, I knew it was done, but I still had this false optimism and I didn't want to scare him. And I was also I, completely bullshitting myself. And I just was like, you know, I think it's just a misunderstanding. He said, you need, you need a lawyer. I said, I don't have a lawyer. And so we both came up with the idea that we would, um, you know, I had a real estate attorney because I owned a few homes and I said, you know, okay, I'll call up my real estate attorney. And I say, Hey, this is what's happening. And they said, how, how come your dad couldn't um, function as your lawyer here or bring in someone from his firm? He, so he's retired and, mm. you know, I, I, he also is one of the smartest guys I know, but he stays very much in his lane. So this is not in his lane. You know, he is a patent attorney through and through, and that is, you know, where he's going to practice. So he had, you know, he was like, you need a criminal attorney. And fortunately, my real estate attorney, there's a white collar attorney that works out of their office. So they were able to arrange that. So I was able to arrange representation on the drive home. And I called, I called my wife a few more times, just trying to get more details, trying to understand something. I'm trying to understand what it is I'm driving into, you know, cause I'm just, I'm so scared at this point that I don't know. But l let me ask you a question. Like, is she scared too? Because she did know about these boxes that being delivered to her furniture store. So she could potentially be an accomplice. So, so that was, that was brought up, um, after I was arrested, they, they asked about her, um, and they asked about her in a really crappy way. Um, the agent, you know, he said to me after I was arrested, sitting in the back of the car, who else was involved? Nobody was involved. Don't bullshit me. We found multiple toothbrushes in your guest bathroom. We know that there are other people involved. There is no way that one person alone could do this entire fraud. It's impossible. Who else was involved? I said, no, nobody. It was just me. And he literally said, he goes, how about that pretty little fucking wife of yours? And I was, I mean, scared and helpless because my, my hands are behind my back, but I swear I wanted to just punch him. I was like, how dare you? And, you know, I said, no, she, she knew nothing. She had nothing to do with this. I cannot express that enough to you. And fortunately he let it go and they realized, you know, that it was just me. Wow. But it's interesting that what he, the technique, like he, he basically sort of halfway flattered you. He said, um, 
one person can't do a fraud like this. So that's a little bit flattering to kind of both get on your side and, uh, you know, maybe answer this and, and, you know, maybe it, it implies because he's flattering you, maybe it implies that you get a, a better treatment if you, you know, tell him quote unquote more or I don't know. I'm just trying to think of the way he said things, like why he said it that way. Cause they always have a reason for doing things. Right. So oh, very calculated. Yeah. I mean, he was, yeah. Like, why did he say, why did he say pretty fucking wife? Like, was it to get you angry? And so that you would say things when you were not thinking rationally or was it to flatter you or was it to, was it to get you angry? Like, like let's bring her in because maybe she's up to something too and gets you, I don't know, gets you angry at her. I don't know. I think, I mean, I think it was, I think it was trying to elicit some form of reaction. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. The, the buttering up and the flattery of, you know, nobody could do this on their own. You know, now, now I'm going to start feeling even cockier. So maybe I'm going to, you know, divulge more information because I'm, uh, you know, this criminal mastermind or something like that, you know, that, you know, I'm going to then divulge things because, you know, I'm so smart and you won't, you still won't catch me. You know, maybe that's. Yeah. Or even, even if you had said at that point, I need to talk to my lawyer that would have been an answer of sorts, you know, it, it, yeah, it definitely would have been. And he continued down that path. You know, he let that, he let the co-conspirator route go and then went into where were you on September 11th. And one of my, one of my clients was, um, Cantor Fitzgerald. So they were obviously, mm -hmm. you know, devastated on September 11th and every year they run a charity event on the trading floor, you know, celebrities come in and, you know, it's this really wonderful event that they do. And every year I go. So I just assumed that's where I was. I didn't really, so I was arrested on October 1st. So this is a couple of weeks before that. And I just assumed September 11th, I was at this event. I said, I'm at a charity event. And again, it was bullshit. Don't lie to me. That's not where you were. And I realized with his tone and where this was going and that there was no way I was going to remember where I was. That's when I requested um, an attorney. I said, I'm going to invoke my right to silence. And he made me question that by saying, are you sure? Because with second you do this, there's nothing I can do for you. I won't be able to help you anymore. And I said, I'm, I'm sure. You know, I'm, I'm sure I was so scared. And like I said, with the handcuffs well, behind me. Did your attorney meet you at your house uh, by the time you got there? No, no, no. He was, um, so they, they took me to the courthouse in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And they, this was, a really crappy part of the experience. So they, you know, bring me into the, the basement of the, of the courthouse. The FBI agents, actually, they lock their guns in the trunk. They like triple lock them. They have chains and they put them in a box, which they lock, which they then chain, which they then lock the trunk. Um, which made me just kind of realize like, wow, there's, you know, I'm, I'm, it just, it added weight to the situation. So we go through these catacombs into this, this holding cell area. And there's another criminal there and he's wearing, you know, a khaki jumpsuit. It was just like, wow, do I have to wear one of those? I have no idea what's going on. And there are two guys in the room and one of them looks like a biker. He's just this frightening looking dude. He's got tattoos. He's got this long red beard. He's jacked. He just looks menacing. And the other guy is straight out of the military, high and tight haircut, khaki press pants, eyes odd shirt tucked into him. And the FBI agent said, these are the federal marshals. You are now property of the federal marshals. 
And the federal marshals said, okay, we're going to process you. So that was the that was the fingerprinting, the DNA with the cotton swabs inside the mouth, um, the mugshot, fingerprinting. Um, and then came the, the strip search. And that was, you know, okay, take everything off. So I take everything off down to my boxers. And the guy looks at me just disgustingly. He's like, everything. Okay, so I'm standing there naked. I'm covering myself. And he says, or starts uh, throwing out command after command. Um, run your fingers through your hair. Uh, fish hook your mouth and, you know, open up. Stick your tongue out. Uh, palm, arms out to the sides. Palms up, palms down. Lift your left foot up. Lift your right foot up. Um, lift up your testicles. And then it was turn around, bend over, squat, and cough. And I had no idea what he, I've, the words made sense, but I've never heard them in that context before. So I said, I'm sorry, what? And he repeats it. I said, I'm sorry, I'm still not understanding you. What, what is it that you want me to do? And he just screamed it. He screamed it. And I did what I was told. And I stood there naked as he went through each item of clothing, as if he was trying to find the last drop of water on earth. He wrung each piece of clothing, inch by inch. And he would just throw throw a piece to me when he was you know done with it. And slowly I, I was able to get dressed. And from there, that is when I was able to meet my attorney. Um, I get escorted into this room with a, a cage dividing the room. And there's a woman and a man sitting there. And I sit down and the woman announces herself. She's a pretrial probation officer. And then the man just starts speaking. And I remember saying to him, I said, I'm sorry, who are you? He said, I'm your attorney. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you had talked to him on the phone. Actually, I didn't even speak to him on the phone. It all went through the office. And he, they, okay. they like, we're going to, the real estate offices, we're going to get in touch with him. We're going to give him all the details. And he was able to, I think, call to find out where I was being taken. And his office is also in Bridgeport. So he was able to just, you know, thank God he was not on a case or doing something else. He was able to, to meet me there. And so then what happened? That is the, that is the, the, you know, so I, I get dressed and they've got something actually funny happened um, while I was in there. I'm sitting, I'm sitting in the handcuffs. They still have me cuffed. I'm in the, I'm in the corner of the room and they're all talking about who's going to get credit for my arrest. And they're talking about this, that, and the other thing. And I have an old rotator cuff injury. And so the handcuffs were really, they were starting to bother me. They were really, it was driving my shoulder nuts. So I start, I start wriggling around and my right hand comes out of the cuffs. So, I mean, James, you know me, I'm not a big dude, you know, for anybody who's listening, I'm, I'm a small skinny guy. My hand slips right out of the handcuffs and I, I freaked out and I said, I was like, oh shoot, I don't want them thinking I'm escaping. Nobody noticed, nobody sees. And I just said, hey, Hey, excuse me. And they all four of them, there were two FBI agents, two marshals, they shot their head around. And I had my hand up in the air, actually, it was my left hand with the um, with the cuff hanging from it. And they all just look and they look like they potentially want to kill me. And the marshals look at the FBI agents and they just go, Jesus Christ, thank God he's not fucking dangerous. <laughs> and, um, you know, they I said, Can we take the cuffs off at this point? And they said, Yeah, we can take the cuffs off. And that's when they brought me to my my arraignment and we we're going through these corridors and these doors and the the marshal you know uses one of those cards to keep opening it's like um door after door opening opening lock after lock i asked where where are we going 
And he looked at me like I'm an idiot. He said, we're going to your arraignment. Oh, you know, I mean, all I can always say is just, okay, because I have no idea what the heck is going on. And I come out into a courtroom through like the, through the door that's behind the judge's bench, you know, that you see on TV. You know, I've never thought of yeah. walking through that door. And they put me in the juror's box, which I thought was interesting. And my, my attorney was at the table and then there was the, you know, the prosecutor, the judge came in, we all stood up and he outlined the, or I'll rewind real quickly. My wife came in, my wife met me at the courthouse and she walked in and we, we made eye contact and I, I'll, I'll never forget. It was, you know, we both smiled at each other, like that smile that, you know, it's going to be okay. And we both knew it wasn't going to be okay. Mm. And she sits down. She looked like the weight of the world was on her shoulders. Um, she looked absolutely devastated. And so the judge starts going through outlining the charges. And he said, you know, Mr. Stanlin's charged with one count of mail fraud, um, subsection 18 dot, whatever it may have been. The charge can lead to upwards of a $250,000 fine and a 20 year prison sentence. And my head just fell in my hands. And my wife made this sound. And I actually wrote this in my book. It was the, the line that I wrote in my book. It was the sound of something inside of her breaking. It was the most visceral, raw sound of pain of somebody, somebody who was hurt so much by somebody that they love. And I think that, I think that kind of hurt can only come from from somebody that you truly, that you truly do love. And I just sat there and I didn't understand a lot of what he was saying because there's a lot of legalese. And um, it, it turned out that I was able to, my, my wife and my father co-signed the hundreds, $100,000 bail agreement. So I was able to, to leave on my own recognizance, which is actually really, I should rewind. So when October 1st, 2013, when I was arrested, the government was in a shutdown they were completely shut down. And one of the agents, when we were driving to the Bridgeport courthouse, he took great joy in telling me, he goes, you know, we're in a government shutdown right now. Every single person here today volunteered to arrest you without pay. Oh my God. <laughs> why, why do they do that? Like why, why couldn't they wait till like Monday or, you know, the day that things opened? I have, I have no idea why. And I have no idea why he told me that. Like, were, like were you like, on their top 10 list in Connecticut or something like they, there was like, I guess they were going after you for months. So it was a big case for them, but it was, you know, I think, I think once that ball is in motion, they just, they, they, they do it. And, you know, I'm so lucky that I was able to release on bail. I'm lucky that the judge was able to be there because of the yeah. shutdown. Otherwise I would have been, you know, kept in a holding cell for who knows I mean, how long. Was there a chance there would have been no bail. Like you were obviously non-dangerous. You you were probably, you, you weren't a flight risk. They probably, did they seize your bank accounts or something? They, they didn't seize my bank accounts, but they did seize my passport. So I couldn't go anywhere. And they knew I wasn't, um, well, particularly at that point, not a flight risk, but I wasn't a risk in general. So that's, yeah. you know, why I was able to get bail. And it was a, it's a chunk of money for what I, you know, actually the nature of the crime, you know, it was a significant amount of money. Right. It was basically, it was basically everything you had made was the bail. Right. 
And did right. they did they do the math that way, or they just figured, okay, this is a federal crime; it's got to be at least a hundred thousand. You know, I don't know how they calculate that. Uh, my guess would be that it is a federal crime. It's a hundred thousand. That yeah. that would be just a, a pure guess. And then, um, did so you didn't spend the night in jail that time? No, I didn't. So, what I've what I've realized, a lot of people don't necessarily understand how the system works. You know, so I get arrested on October 1st. I didn't actually go to prison until August 13th, 2014. So there was about 10 months between arrest and actually going to prison. And I was super lucky that it was that fast. I know guys who have waited up to seven years between the arrest and actually going to prison. So their life is in limbo for seven years. What would years. you do? Like, what kind of job can you get? in that time. I, I, first off, you'd be stressed. So I don't even know how I would be creative to think about what sort of jobs I could do. Um, you know, even if it was like a, you know, the so-called side hustle or whatever, I wouldn't be able to do anything. I'd just be too stressed. I'd be talking to the lawyers all the time. But so you get home that night and do you drive home with your wife? Drive home with my wife. Yes. So, um, you know, she gets in the car. You must be feeling a little bit of relief. Like, oh, maybe there's some hope here. Maybe there's Maybe I can figure everything out and it'll be fine. A very small percentage of that. I, I basically knew that it had come to an end. You know, I, I basically knew that it was over and that it was done. And when we walked into the house, it was just, how could you? You lied to me. You said this was okay. What are we going to do now? And there was just all these questions that I did not have an answer for. I had no answer whatsoever for them. And, you know, talk about like creativity. It's those 10 months were some of the most difficult 10 months that I've actually had because I didn't also realize what kind of prison I would be going to. My pretrial probation officer, that woman that was in the room with my attorney, she told me specifically, do not watch anything on prisons because it's going to scare you. Don't look up anything. Don't research anything. Do yourself a favor and just let it let that go. Let the prison part go. And I listened to her. What about there's a famous book, um, How to Survive in Prison? There's a, some book like with that kind of title. I, I took her to heart and I didn't research anything. So what I ended up doing to myself was, you know, that I didn't know that there were different levels of prisons. I just assumed that because I'm 5'4 and at the time I was 140 pounds, that I was just going to get raped and beaten every day. I just assumed that that was a given and that I, you know, I was like, I'm not, I can't defend myself in prison. I'm a tiny guy. But again, my, my gut would be nonviolent crime, federal crime, uh, first time crime, not many charges, decent lawyer. You're, you're obviously going to plead guilty at the end. Uh, and you're, you're going to be willing to pay any fine. My, my gut would be even that first day would be, a, a camp fed type of prison uh, where it's, you know, pretty much people like you and everybody's walking around and hanging out and it's, it's not a big deal. It's just your rights are taken away from you and you're in prison. That would be my gut that first day. I didn't, I didn't have that gut at all. I didn't really even, you know, I'd heard of the word camp fed, you know, I've, I've, I'd heard of that, but I really didn't know what it meant. You know, I had no idea that existed. So those first few, it was about four months, literally, of the limbo of thinking that I was going to a hardcore prison. Well, what was going on with your, with your wife at that time, and, and also friends? Did you, and I guess you quit your job. Like, what? How did you do every? How did you settle things up right after that? 
that was those were some of the most difficult phone calls I had to make. We kept it from a lot of friends in the beginning. I told my best friend, Sean, the guy that I reference in my TED talk, the guy who pretty much saved my life. You know, I called him, called all my family. I called her family. And then I called my new boss and I didn't tell him what happened. But I just said, I thank you for the opportunity. But something came up and I, I have to resign. And he refused my resignation. He, he wouldn't accept it. He said, I really want you here. I think you're a great addition. Whatever's going on, it will, it will work itself out. And when it could, does, could you, you have gone back in. to work with him? No, they, well, at sentencing, it was actually um, deter. I have a court order barring me from that industry. So I couldn't have. But I mean, at that time though, when you were in on bail. And theoretically, I could. Theoretically, I could. No, I couldn't. They said it at arraignment that I couldn't have any contact with Cisco. That's right. I believe I remember at the arraignment that I could not have any contact with Cisco. So I couldn't have I couldn't have gone back. And were there any words of support that anyone gave you, particularly in these first few days or the first month that kind of gave you some some hope, some encouragement? My family was nothing short of extraordinary. Um, they were whatever you need, whatever, whatever my wife needs. They were they were unbelievable in their kindness and their support. And her family, her, her um, stepfather was fantastic as well. You know, he was really he's a stand-up guy and he, everybody offered the support. Nobody really, when I first made that first phone call, I didn't go into the details because I was just so consumed by shame and confusion that it was just a limited amount of information. I got arrested by the FBI. You know, I didn't really explain why. I didn't explain what I did. But and you I must just, have said you must have said it was a nonviolent crime. I didn't do anything bad, like bad yeah, like that. I, I did, I did. You know, I definitely, I definitely said that, but I didn't go into any of the the details. And it was just whatever you need, um, you know, whatever Kyla needs. You know, we're we're there, we're there for you. And they were and, they were great. And how were things right then between you and your wife? Broken, like like that was just it. It was it was broken. But we had to, we had to make it work in a sense of. So she had, she had just started that business, and we realize now without my income, this business that she literally just started that you know didn't even have any metrics of whether or not it was going to be a success, if it was going to be whatever. We had to make this thing work because we didn't know where I was going to, what was going to happen. To you, you mentioned you owned a few homes. Like, could you have sold homes? Could you have mortgaged them? Um, they. The government had a lien on everything because I had a, um, there was going to be, and I still have restitution. So they had, they had liens on everything. So I couldn't, if I sold anything, they would get the proceeds. The government would get the proceeds. So how are you, how are you supposed to like survive? I mean, I guess everybody asked this question, but like, what's the answer? I closed my 401k, took a huge tax um, hit and closed my 401k and, you know, used, used that. And it was really, it was just trying to, to scramble to get this business going, living in the same house, living under the same roof, and just the pressure of, of trying to get this thing off the ground. Because we didn't know at that time, we didn't know until actually sentencing, which was June of 2014, how long I was going to be away for. You know, prison was always looming on the horizon. One of my pretrial probation officers told me I was only going to get probation. You didn't do anything that bad. You're only going to get probation. Deep in my heart, I, I knew I was going to get prison. And my attorney was like, don't listen to them. 
most likely you're getting, you're going to go to prison. And he explained to me, and this will actually tie back to that million dollar mark. He explained to me, he actually pulled out um, a book, big blue book, that is the sentencing guidelines. So is the, you just, you take the number of victims, the financial amount, um, first offense, there's a bunch of factors that you take and it assigns you a point score. And then you just go down the graph and you look at the points and I was supposed to get 27 to 33 months was the the range that I was looking at. And if what I was the restitution it, you were looking at? The restitution was 834,000 and change. And is that a function of how much profit you made times multiple or? That was a That was the list price of the equipment that I made false claims on less a 40% discount. Okay. So it was the exact damage, but there wasn't restitution in terms of like, Hey, we also got to charge you a fine. No, I did not get a fine, which I was, I was really fortunate that I didn't get a fine. So it was only the, only the restitution, which part of my closing my 401k, um, I took a lot of that money. I took a hundred grand of it and I knew that I was pleading guilty. So at, at, when I was pleading, I made an immediate $100,000 payment towards that restitution in basically an effort to buy myself out of getting a prison sentence. Is there any way your lawyer could have played it so that you could have avoided prison? I know this almost sounds bad, but could he have said, look, my client is innocent. We're going to fight this every step of the way. You guys did not follow correct procedure in arresting my client. You harassed him. You harassed his wife. Could he have been aggressive and then use that to back off to negotiate lighter sentencing or would that have caused more trouble? I mean, I have no clue. It's a, it's, it's a great, great question. And I, so in the beginning, when I was looking through the FBI paperwork and the report, there were minor errors in there. You know, there were these little, and I can't remember specific examples, but there was stuff that stuck out. Like, and I would look at my attorney and go, that's wrong. We should fight this. And he's like, you're going to lose. Well, okay. Here's a, here's another one. I'm, I'm trying to get you out of jail in the past. I appreciate that. Could you have gone to Cisco and given them a whole plan to prevent anybody doing this in the future? So that you, you are so on point. What I ended up doing uh, the day before sentencing was sitting down with them and explaining exactly how I did what I did. And I also told them uh, other, other avenues that somebody could exploit because I found other avenues that I didn't exploit. But I sat down with them for hours and just said, this is exactly how I did it. And these are other areas that you are vulnerable in. And I was able to get, so I had that 27 to 33 month range. I ended up with a 24 month sentence. So I got a three month reduction. And my attorney told me, he's like, the hundred grand helped, but it really was you sitting down with Cisco and doing what you did is what got that three month reduction. I wonder if you had done it faster, like if you had done it that first week, like, and not only told them what you did, but come up with a plan. Like, so let me just think for a second. So a plan could be, um, if someone submits a warranty, they have to submit the warranty. Uh, I mean, I mean, wouldn't they check the the serial numbers with what uh, you they they sold? Wouldn't they compare them to see that they, the warranty was for the right device? They they absolutely do do that. An interesting thing when you buy the warranty on the box in general, that has a serial number associated with it, and that's the serial number you use to file the case the cards have their own serial numbers as well but it's not always tied to that specific router you know people move things all the time so they don't necessarily track the card serial number only in as much to make sure that it's genuine cisco 
I see. So you get this router with a card, uh, but the card you return could be anything because the cards are used over and over in different routers, whatever. Correct. Yeah. And so, okay, so let me just think then, what's another way that they could prevent this? Well, they could. They know from the serial number when that card was sold, but there's no kind of tracking history of like where it goes, company to company. Um, hmm. I don't know how. How do they stop this? I. I don't know, and I know. So an interesting thing at sentencing, uh, you know, when we were all standing outside of the courtroom and all being the prosecutors and my lawyer and my family, we're all hanging out. And I went to, I went to go say hi to the FBI agent who arrested me, the guy who, you know, actually was a bit of a jerk. I just thought it was the right thing to do just to go over and say hi. And he was sitting with the head of the fraud detection unit or somebody from the fraud detection unit from Cisco. And I said, Hey, just wanted to say hi. I forget what else I said, but as I was walking away, he, I heard the FBI agent say to the Cisco representative, so is this a big case for you? And the Cisco rep said, he's like, no, this is nothing for us. So it happens a lot. I mean, could Cisco have said, if you had gone right away, could Cisco have said, listen, we really don't want charges pressed against this guy. He's going to help us figure out how to plug this up. Could they have, could they have been an advocate for you? Yes. You sold a lot of their products in the past. Yes. Yes. And no, I think they, I mean, they could have, they are the ones who filed the complaint in the, um, you know, in the first place that started the investigation. So they definitely wanted to, to, to catch me and I don't blame them. And then, you know, at sentencing, he, the representative was okay with me when he had his chance to speak, when he said that Mr. Stanley was, you know, helpful, you know, my family and my attorney and, you know, a bunch of people were like, he could have done a little bit better of a job. He could have advocated for you a little bit more than he did. And I thought that he was, I thought part of the agreement that we had was that he was going to advocate a little bit more for me at sentencing than he did. I mean, I guess, um, I guess you could, you, if you were Cisco, you could say, before we give you a new card, you're showing us that we broke the warranty um, or that the, the card's broken. So now you need a new card before they give you a new card. Maybe they could have gone on site to see the, the, the broken card, uh, you know, just to verify it, or maybe they even can get like a picture. I'm, I'm just trying to think what could have tightened this up. Maybe not in a hundred percent of cases, but maybe like in 90%. I think a picture would be a really great idea. The, to be able to scale because they, I don't know the exact number of cases that they deal with every year, but to have a representative go out for every single case, you know, some of these cards only their list price is a thousand dollars. So to have somebody go out, you know, for every one of those cards, I think it just would be, it would be cost ineffective to pay somebody to go out and verify, but a photograph with the serial number would be a really, I think that would be a great idea. Well, well, and the other thing they can do is, I mean, they, they can have various filters. So like, Photograph with the serial number is filter number one. Then if it's the same company doing it like three times in a three-month period, I don't know, maybe then you send someone or maybe you delay the payment until you get the card or I don't know. There's probably some way to kind of escalate it until you do need a person on the scene. They could probably put a lot of different safety protocols in place. I, I'm thinking that you're, I mean, you're right. I like that, you know, three cases in a month time period or at rolling 30 day time period. 
you know, three cases is too, you know, is too many. That's a bit of a yeah, red flag. Yeah. Something's not right. Do you think if you had been proactively so solution oriented, they would have been more of a, of an advocate or it doesn't really matter? I don't think it would have mattered. Honestly, I don't think it would have mattered because um, they just deal with this and this is what it like, cause they filed the case. So, so I actually, we never, we never cover this. And then I want to cover obviously what happens next, but, uh, how did the FBI get on you? So I, I learned really quickly, uh, don't commit fraud against one of the world's largest technology companies that have people and AI that are way smarter than you. Rule they, number one. Rule number, <laughs> yes, exactly. Rule number one, don't do that. The, they, they have a fraud detection unit. And I got, I'll be quite, I got lazy that I would use very similar language in the TAC cases that I was opening. So that just pulled up a red flag as well. So I'm using very similar, if not the exact same cut and paste language for these multiple ghost companies that I had created. That was a huge red flag for them. They were able to pick up on that very quickly. The number of cases that were opened in such a short amount of time, that, that threw a red flag up. The computers threw a red flag on that. Because in order to do properly what you were doing, going to guide you and the listeners on how to be a, a criminal here. You would have had to do multiple states, not just UPS. You had to do UPS, FedEx, uh, uh, multiple businesses, apartments, many more businesses probably than you started. You probably would have been running all around in different states, buying, you know, broken cards or, you know, using many more websites. Everything you did would have been much more diversified. And that's just too, too much work for the um, relatively small amount of profit versus the amount of work you would have had to do to make this undetectable. That's exactly right. And yeah, I mean, this is one of the dumbest things. One of my, my, my ex um, is in IT. And so when she was looking through, you know, the criminal report, she just, she like basically gave me a, a virtual slap on the head over the phone. She said, what were you thinking? Use the same IP address for every single one. She's like, didn't I teach you anything? <laughs> Yeah. And also the fact that the Cisco guy said you're ordering everything in the same case. That's a little weird because you're a professional buyer and you're buying some of your illegal stuff in, mixed in with the legit stuff. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was so many red flags that they were able to pick up on. And the, the other thing, the, that same FBI agent, he, he said to me at one point, he goes, you know, I just want to, I want to thank you. You are the most organized person I have ever met. You made this so easy for me because your spreadsheets, because you keep the best spreadsheets. He goes, this was just so easy. Did you get a little bit of a Stockholm syndrome with him? Like you kind of wanted him to like you, but by the end, like you're having these normal conversations with him about how, about your spreadsheets. It becomes, it becomes such a bizarre, weird relationship where, you know, he, there is this bond, but you're also on opposite ends. And I know I wouldn't say it was Stockholm, but there was definitely weird mutual respect also keeping distance like you're the enemy but you're not the enemy because you were doing your job like i didn't fault him i mean the guy was just doing his job yeah. so 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 you're given 24 months and does your lawyer give you guidance on how much you'll realistically serve with good time no not even a little bit not even i mean because like you're probably going to serve what like eight months so it actually it was really, I was really fortunate. You asked a question before of like encouraging words. And I had a neighbor, I had um, a downstairs neighbor, this 80 something year old guy, Wayne, who 
found out about what happened to me in the newspaper and he sent me this text message. I'm so sorry. I just found out what you and, and you know your wife are experiencing. I have a friend that I think you should reach out to. And it's this guy, Jeff, who runs a support group for white collar criminals. And I was able to, with Jeff, I was able to understand the prison I'd be going to, that I would be going to most likely a camp setting. Although there was a chance if there were no beds in a camp that I would go to a low facility. That was a that was still a real possibility. Um, he explained good time to me with no guarantees because there's no, you know, the Bureau of Prisons works in a very strange way. So it was like, here's how it's supposed to work. It's a percentage of your overall sentence. And I ended up getting three months and maybe one week off of my sentence for good time. So, okay. But, but before you go in for the, for, to serve your time, did you and your wife have a conversation about what was going to happen? Like, so you're, you're, you're 10 months living with her. How's her business doing? And how's the relationship with, with her? Like, are you guys living, sleeping in different rooms? What's, what's going on? We, the relationship was tenuous. There were, arguments all the time. And it was always the same argument. It was always just, you lied to me. What's going to happen to our lives? And I still, I had no, I had no answers whatsoever for her. And I'll tell you a quick story of really one of the biggest punch to the guts I've ever had was we're having an argument and she's sitting at the edge of the sofa and just like, she's hanging on. It's just pure tension and anger that's keeping her holding on to the sofa. And I'm, I'm defending myself. I still didn't even, with all of this happening, I still didn't even admit how wrong I was. Even though I knew I was, to her, I just couldn't do that. And in my mind, I'm sitting there thinking like, what is she worried about? She's got this business that's going to be successful. She's beautiful. She's smart. Um, you know, she's got this amazing personality. She's just pissed at me because she's not going to have the shoes and the dresses and the, and the dinners and all these things. And I knew that wasn't true. My wife loved me for me. She didn't give a crap about all of those things. I would have been happy without them. So I'm thinking that in my brain as we're arguing. And she looks up from the edge of the sofa with her head in her hands. And she goes, do you want to know why I'm sad? She goes, I'll tell you why I'm sad. I'm sad because my dreams for us have been destroyed. And then I realized what an arrogant ass I had been and how wrong I was. And I was literally one of the biggest punches to the guts I've ever experienced. How old was she? She was at the time, let me think, 27. She, did she want to have kids? She, she did. She did. And that was, you know, would have, and that was a, that was a question in our relationship because I wasn't sure if I wanted to have kids. And if it still came up of, you know, what if we had children and this had happened? You know, what then? What we, what we, we have done then? And did you guys talk about, well, okay, first off, how's, how's her business doing? Did it get off the ground? I think she's doing really, really well. Um, I hope she's doing extraordinarily well. She's been featured in um, New York Magazine, the New York Times, French Vogue. Uh, I think she's That's doing, great. yeah, I, I really hope she's doing phenomenally. And, and did you guys talk about what was going to happen with you? So that 10 months, were you sleeping in different rooms? What was? We, we still slept in the same bed. We still slept in the same bed um, it, we, and it's, we, we were getting along, but it was just this knowing that prison, knowing the unknown looming overhead, just it cast a shadow on every single thing that we did. You know, we tried to the best of our ability to live a, live a normal life, but we just, 
everything was cast in that shadow of like did you go out to eat anymore did you go to an amusement park or movies or we we so we still did go out to eat you know we would do that um i would cook at home we'd still have wine and you know it was you know the thinking of the wine there was you know i would cook for us and we would hang out and it would be okay she would go to sleep and then i would stay up and just grab the bottle of captain morgan's and i would just go sit on the kitchen floor and you know every night ended up the same of just me thinking about how much my insurance policy was and how much better off she would be with that and it just mm -hmm. thinking i was like why can't i just end it i can give it to i can give it to my sister and i can give it to my wife you know because i have a niece and nephew so it would help them with college um you know and i was like and, and my wife would be better off without me and every single night ended up the same i would pretty much almost kick the entire bottle of captain morgan's and lay on the ground crying and and wake up a little while after and realize I had to get myself into bed before she found me there. I mean, were you guys thinking that you would get divorced? Were you already talking about that? Or it were, was were you thinking you would stay together? It was it was it was mentioned, but I was really holding on hope that we would stay together. I was really, really holding on to that. You know, I life think totally she would be did you think she would be faithful while you were away? Were you worried you would be nervous if she was faithful while you were away? I was worried about that. Um, nothing that she had ever done to give me any indication of that. Sure. But I think that was my own, you know, it almost feels like that same, that same worth and enough issue that led me to spend all that money and seeking that validation externally also made me feel not worthy of her. Sure. You know, my ex-wife is is truly stunning woman, and I, I put her up on a on a pedestal, which I think can be good and bad. It's not good when there's a disparity, and I don't feel worthy of her, and I create, you know, that we're no longer equals in this relationship. So I did have that worry of just you know this stunning, amazing woman, and you know I'm going to be away. What does that What does that mean for us? So yeah, I did I did worry did, about that. Would you bring that up? Like, what would she say? I never, I never brought that up. I didn't bring that up. I was too scared to bring that up. I think I have to give you credit for some bravery there. Like, I think I would have just given up. I think I would have just said, look, there's no way this is going to work out now. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna give up and, and, and we don't have to stay together. I, I don't count this as we're staying together. And I don't even want to think about this worry. I think I would have gone that route, which might not have been the best route, but I think that's probably the route I would have gone. I appreciate you saying that it was courageous, but honestly, I think it was almost a little bit of fear of losing the one last thing that I still felt like I had. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what was really driving everything. You know, I mean, that was, I think it was just pure, pure fear. Yeah. Ugh, it's so, so it's brutal. It all sounds brutal. Um, so I mean, were brutal. you guys, uh, you don't have to answer, but were, were you guys like intimate during this time? Were you trying to keep up a, a relationship? No, we were, we were not intimate. Um, there was, A, I don't think she was, saw me that way anymore because of the trust that I had broken. And B, the fear of, even if we were being careful, the fear of getting pregnant. You know, yeah. could you imagine, uh, you know, an, an unexpected pregnancy and then I'm going to prison 
and where we and we don't know you know until i was sentenced in june you know up until that point not even knowing what was going to happen but knowing that prison was on the horizon so no there was we were not intimate Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside, it's so comfortable, and it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off-road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off-road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 no. we're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability as well as its robust interior are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Well, okay, so now, sadly, you go to prison. So you're sentenced and 
you know, the judge says you're going to prison at that, at, at that point, obviously you knew you were going to prison Were you, you were holding out hope or did you know the deal beforehand? I was, I was holding out hope. It was it all came down to sentencing and at the, at the very end, she, she comes out of chambers to, you know, after contemplating her decision and everybody sits and I'm standing there. And it was again with the legalese, like I didn't understand everything. And I was also so, I was so stressed. And I'd also, I'd lost about 30 pounds out of pure stress. I went down to 110 pounds. Oh my gosh. Um, I graduated high school at 115. You know, and my attorney actually tried using that at sentencing. Your honor, look at what this has done to him. He looks like death. You know, I mean, he's skin and bones. This is obviously tearing him up. But she comes out of chamber. She starts going through the legalese. And the gavel comes down. And I look at my attorney. And I said, was I just sentenced to prison? And he looked at me like I was completely nuts. And he goes, you just got 24 months prison. I was like, wow. Oh, okay. And you know, we, we drive home again, we drive home. Um, and that was just another argument. And now we have, we, we had a ballpark of when I would be going away. Um, the designation letters of the Bureau of Prisons designates prisoners to, you know, wherever they want to put them. They usually try to keep them within a certain circumference of where they live so that the family can come visit. So we had no idea. We knew I was going away, didn't know where I was going, didn't know when I was going. And it was just a question of, again, with her business and just trying to wrap up all these loose ends as much as possible in that short time period. And then I did get my designation letter, which was August 13th, 2014, to Otisville Federal Prison, which, um, to, to your point before, was uh, number nine on Forbes' list of the 10 top cushiest prisons um, in the country. So it was August 13th comes around. And we had a we had a cat and a dog, um, and I remember you know the dog had, was diagnosed with a giant grapefruit sized tumor, and she was given a short time to live. So I didn't think that I would ever see her again. So I was giving her a big hug, and I was crying, and my wife was looking at me holding the dog. She was crying. You know, I find the cat, and I'm picking her up, and I'm just crying my eyes out. And then my dad and stepmom had arrived to drive us to to prison. So we're making that drive and, and my wife is just, you know, during that time, I really do want to say because of all the weight that I was losing, she was really worried about me and she did take care of me. She was making sure I ate a quart of ice cream every night, trying to prevent me from losing any more weight. She was legitimately so concerned for me and, and really did have so much love for me. And on the drive up, you know, she had brought food because she's like, you have to eat. You don't know when you're going to eat. I was able to manage half a banana you know, the conversation in the car was really forced. At one point, I look, I'm sitting in the backseat and I look over my, my stepmother's driving. I look over her shoulder and she's doing 90 miles an hour. And I was sat there and I go, who races to prison? <laughs> Why are we racing to prison? And we, we pull up. Otisville Federal Prison is on, um, on top of a mountain, on top of what's called One Mile Drive is the name of the road. And it was, you know, almost like the... Um, you know, the beginning of The Shining, driving up this winding road all the way to the top. And we, we find the camp. And I, I see the camp and I can see that there's no fences. And I can see the people that are there because they're out walking around. And I felt pretty good. I felt okay. And somebody, you know, an inmate actually comes up to the car and says, you know, oh, you're in the wrong place. You got to go to the medium security facility, which is adjacent to here to check in. So, okay, that's a little confusing. 
So we, we, we leave the parking lot, we go to the medium security prison, and it's exactly what you're probably envisioning. It's got the 30-foot high barbed wire fences. It's got the guard towers with, you know, guys sitting in there with guns. It's a, it's a scary and imposing place. And my stepmother, when we pull up to it, she looked at me and she goes, you're not going in there. I said, I don't really have much choice in the matter. So I said goodbye to them in the parking lot. And my wife and I walked into the reception area. Um, and there's guards sitting in this kind of fishbowl office. You know, it's all plexiglass. And I almost like checking into a hotel, you know, Stanland Craig. Okay, have a seat. We'll be with you in a moment. And so she and I are sitting there. We're holding hands and we're hugging and we're crying and we're kissing. And then the guard comes and he says, you know, Stanlin, say your goodbyes. It's, it's time to go. And I remember she walked, you know, I walked into, into one door, into the prison, and she was walking out of the prison. And I remember thinking, I was thinking that we're both walking into new and complete different lives. Mm-hmm. And so I'm care, you know, I'm I'm in this medium security prison. They again take me through these catacombs, door after door with the big skeleton keys, and and they lead me down to what's called receiving um, R and D, receiving and departure. He comes to this holding cell. He opens up the door, and without saying a word, I I know what I have to do, and I, I you know, I walk into it. And the moment I cross that threshold, he just slams the door behind me. And that sound of a prison cell locking behind me, the finality of that, it was like a, it was like a sledgehammer on my back. And I just, there was a wooden bench. I just sat down and I put my head in my hands and just waited for what was going to happen next. It was, it was tough. Um, I, was, I was fortunate though, because I was sitting there it was somebody else that was getting checked in and I could hear what they were going through. And he tried lying about his use of prescription meds, which was a big no, no. And I realized listening to him, I wasn't going to be lying about prescription med use, but I was just like, I understand how to answer this guy. Yes, sir. No, sir. I'm not going to extrapolate. I'm not going to say anything else. I understand exactly what I have to do whenever I meet whoever is behind this big booming voice that I can hear. And so I just sat there. And it, it's very dehumanizing. And then it got even worse because they, they came, they unlocked the cell. And he said, Stanlin Medical. I said, okay. And I, I go to this office and there's a woman sitting there. And it looks like a medical office. You know, you got your scale, you got your sphygmometer, you've got an anatomy chart on the wall. And she takes my blood pressure, weighs me, does all the basics, and then pulls out a, a needle a hypodermic needle and she unwraps it. And as she's unwrapping it, she explains that she's going to administer a TB test and she'll be injecting tuberculin underneath my skin, which is going to form a lump. And I go back in a couple of days to see if the lump is still there. As she's explaining to me, the needle rolls off the desk and falls on the floor and rolls around underneath her desk. And she picks it up and she starts prepping the crease in my, in my elbow, you know, with alcohol. And I looked at her I said, are you going to clean that needle since it fell on the floor? And you would have thought that I had said the most atrocious thing that this woman has ever heard. She looked at me like I wasn't even human or real and just said no and just injected me with the needle that just had fallen on the floor. And then I really understood that I'm a number and I am no longer a human 
and this is going to be my life. That was really, really, that was, that was really a scary part of the, the whole thing. But then, and I had to do another strip search, which is, you know, not fun. And the guards like to play a little bit of a joke on new inmates. So he looks at me, I'm standing there naked. And he goes, what size are you? I'm, I'm a small, like that's fairly obvious. And I watch as he gets a big smile on his face and he reaches and he grabs the double extra larges and just gives me these giant clothes with no belt. So I'm sitting there swimming in these clothes, holding my pants up. They give you, um, they give you a bedroll. And the other guy that was getting checked in, he and I now, we could see each other. We were together. And they brought us all the way back through the catacombs, back out that front door that my wife and I had walked into. And this is the most surreal thing. You know, you go through all of that. You're in this high security facility. And then the guard looks at us and he goes, see that rock up there? I said, yeah. He goes, go to that rock, take a right. You'll be at the camp. And this other guy and I, we look at each other and we're like, no, we're not doing that. We're going to get shot. And the guard probably has heard this a million times or seen this. He goes, stay on the path. You're not going to get shot. So we do as we're told and we walk up and we're greeted by fellow inmates and they're all really nice. <laughs> and I, and I, I see, I see this giant man, this just ball of muscle, this six foot four, 270 pound behemoth is sitting there petting this cat on the sidewalk. And the cat is rolling around showing its belly to him. And when cats show their belly, it means they're comfortable with, with the person. And right then and there, I knew that I was going to be safe. It's for some reason that told me that this cat feels safe here. And then said, I'm going to feel safe here. I guess because throughout all this period, from the moment of your arrest till now, most of your life was, was, was uncertain. You had real uncertainty. And, and you know, the, the human brain hates uncertainty. And now finally, that moment in a weird way, you had certainty, you knew exactly how long you would be in jail. That was certain. You knew um, what camp you would be in. That was certain. You knew what kind of treatment you would get from that moment on. That was certain. And so probably your brain was, was releasing dopamine at that point you know, because of all the certain, you, you probably just had this huge rush of certainty. It was, you, you couldn't be more right. I, I slept so well that night. I, I literally slept so well my first night in prison because of all of that certainty. In fact, the only uncertainty, I mean, there obviously there's uncertainty about what you're going to do afterwards and paying the restitution and all that stuff. But there, the only uncertainty you had the right then which probably would have motivated, like I described how it would have motivated my actions earlier. Your only uncertainty is what's going to happen with your wife. That was, that was a huge amount of uncertainty. When I saw that I was safe, when I saw that I was going to be okay, when I saw, and I started meeting people and I was like, wow, these are really nice, interesting people. I start, prison's all about routine. And, and, you know, people brought me under their wing and they were like, get your routine. That's going to get you through this. And so, you know, that was so helpful, but then it was, what is my wife going to do? Is she going to leave me? What is her life like right now? And, you know, when I would talk to her on the phone, she was living a life of hell. I mean, it really was, she couldn't afford our place anymore. So we found a tenant to move into our condo. And, you know, she, my father was so wonderful and helped us in finding and paying for an apartment in Brooklyn for her to be closer to her store. And, and so she had a place to live, but vintage furniture weighs a lot. It was only she and I, 
And this poor woman was going to flea markets by herself and buying stuff and having to ask people for help or figuring out how to get a dresser into her van by herself and then get it to the store and unload it by herself. She was working, you know, 16 hour days and just absolutely miserable and impossible. So I, I had that dark cloud over me of she, she won't, she won't stay with me because her life is just a living hell. I lied. Her life is now a living hell. And it really was just that sort of Damocles, you know, hanging by a thread over everything. Was she responsible for your restitution? Like did, if she made profits in her store, would, would that be claimed by the FBI? No, no, fortunately not. Fortunately not. So she was completely, and when we formed her company, it was, it was only under her name. I was like, this is yours. This is completely yours. You know, I want, I said, I don't need my name on it. You know, I want you to have it. This is what you've created. Um, so that was, that was really, that was really fortunate. And then it was, it was December. I'll never forget. It was December 22nd. You know, so I'd been in for since August. So, you know, about four months, she came for a visit for the holidays. And I could tell that there was, there was something on her mind. I could tell that there was something weighing on her and I didn't respect her wish to not get into it. You know, we're sitting in this crowded prison visiting room a couple of days before Christmas, you know, the places it's packed with people. And I just kept prying and I kept prying. And finally she just said, she looked at me and she goes, I'm leaving you. And we just, we just started crying and we held each other and we kissed and we, we kissed like you couldn't believe. And it was just uh, with tears rolling down our cheeks and, you know, holding each other. I think both of us just knowing that that was the last time that we were ever going to, to do that. And that's really, that's really when things went downhill for me. Um, you know, they were already downhill. I was so happy that I was safe and that I had that certainty. And I can't ever complain about where I was. Um, I will never do that. My physical parameters were totally fine, but it was just the mental prison that I had been locking myself deeper and deeper into. And then when she, when she told me that, that just, that just escalated uh, my mental state of being into just crap. So, so, so I wonder if, like, you kind of knew from the moment you were arrested, this relationship's not going to survive. Like it's, it got fragile right then. It was going to get more fragile the more time that went on, unless you didn't go to jail, which seemed unlikely. Um, you know, I wonder if you had, again, proactively for her sake, not even for your own sake, but for her sake said to her, listen, I know we got to live together these few months before I get sentenced and before I go to jail, but, you know, bear with me these few months, but I understand after that it's over. I hope we can remain friends. I'll help you any way I can for the rest of my life, but there's no expectation just, and again, a to proactively relieve her from having to make that decision that she was inevitably going to make and B again, just to have a little bit more certainty for yourself. So that wouldn't be a, a sword hanging over you those first few months of prison. And I know, I think that is a hard decision to make. Obviously you loved her and cared about her and wanted it to work out. But I wonder if that would have helped you avoid some of the pain instead of feeling the self pity 
that comes after being rejected, you know, and um, like you wouldn't have rejected her, you would have done something for her, but her doing this, you obviously are going to feel the rejection and all the feelings that come with that combined with the fact that there's nothing you could do about it. You're in prison. It's just going to feel horrible. I wonder if you could have, you know, like in poker, right? Sometimes you have two decisions. You can either fold or raise, like you can either get out of the game or you could be extremely aggressively on top of the game. But if you just sort of limp along, you're almost like a guaranteed loser. <laughs> so uh, uh, you, you kind of have to do one or the other or else the other side takes the action that destroys you. <laughs> you know, like if you don't raise, if you just sort of live along and then they raise, you don't know what to do. You're, you're done. Like you, you're in a bad spot. And that's kind of what happened there. It's what a great analogy. And that's exactly what happened. I honestly think, I feel like that would have been, that would have been the right thing to do. I don't know if that even crossed my mind. And I think it was a lot of selfishness and wanting her to stay. And also the, the fear of when I get out of having a place to go and a place to live and to be with somebody who, you know, I do love. And I, but I think it was, I think it was coming from a very fear-based place where I wouldn't even contemplate, you know, proactively doing that. I mean, you title your book, The Blank Canvas, and maybe you could have reached that point of a blank canvas much earlier if you basically just said, that's, that's it. Now, now if, if you had done how I described, plus you're, you, you, you got the certainty with where you're going to be in prison, how long you're going to be there and so on, you would have felt like, okay, the rest of my life is my own now to recreate. And everybody else is free from the stupidity that got me here. It's just me now. And I could start rebuilding from this point. I'm free. Whether I ruin my life from here or whether I have a great life, it's all me and I'm free. And maybe that would have been, a, a, again, another breath of fresh air, sort of like, like the end of the last day of high school where you suddenly, it's like, oh, no more homework ever again. And you know, even though in this case, every situation here is sad, but at least it's a fresh start, which, which you reach, but later on. It, I think it unfolded the way that it had to unfold for me to get the value out of it that I've gotten out of it. I think that really is, it, it happened the way it was meant to happen so that I could write what I wrote and, you know, do the TED talk. And I, I can look back and think that it would be good to proactively have done those things. But I don't think I would have, part of me, I don't know. I don't know how I would have responded, how I would have reacted. But there's such a huge part. You nailed something really important there, which was after I, after I hit my absolute lowest rock bottom, the first step that I took was accepting reality. And that was really difficult for me. And that was the acceptance of, I am sitting in federal prison. I am a federally convicted felon. I am getting divorced. My finances are in ruin. I don't know if anybody's ever going to want to date a felon. You know, I mean, I, I, I wrote this all down. I listed it all down. And the moment I did that, it was that breath of fresh air. It was freedom. I felt freedom inside of prison when I accepted that reality and I gave myself that baseline to start over. And the, the title of my book, The Blank Canvas, that actually came from when I was getting ready to leave prison, my mentor, um, this guy, Ed, who was in for a $60 million Ponzi scheme, really such a sweet guy, such a nice guy. But he said, you're going to be leaving soon. You know, what's going on in your, in your head? 
he and I were walking down the hallway and I said, you know, Ed, I've got no job. There's a court order barring me from my career. I'm getting divorced. Nobody's going to want to date a felon. Like, I didn't say this to him because he still had six years to go on his sentence. So I wanted to be very respectful since I was leaving. But in the back of my head, I was like, prison sucks, but it's three square meals a day and it's a, it's a bed. I don't have a home to go to. I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't know how I'm going to earn money. And I, you know, I said all these things to him and he just put his arm around me and said, Craig, you have a blank canvas. You can paint whatever picture you want. And that was another bit of freedom inside of prison when he said that was a oh shit moment of, oh my God, he's right. I can start over completely from scratch. And then you and I chatted one time about the freedom of starting over from with having nothing, nothing to lose. And there is such a great freedom from that. You know, these things that were such a burden at one point, you know, of not having money, not having these things. It became those, they actually became a freedom because I was like, I can, I can, I can do whatever I want within the law, obviously, but I can do whatever I want because I have zero to lose. I can experiment. I can try. I can, I can, I can create the life that I want to create. And it really, it really helped turn everything around. But when, when did this happen? So I'll rewind a little bit. The acceptance, the acceptance portion, which was really huge for me. So my wife told me she was leaving at the end of December. I had four months of pure hell where I was planning on killing myself. And the, I talk about it in my Ted talk when, when my friend Sean came right. and, you know, I saw that I had worth and that I had value and just a friend. And that's when I started rebuilding my life. Acceptance happened pretty much right after Sean's visit. So that, that happened then, then my next actual step was accepting responsibility. So I thought I had ex accepted responsibility for what I had done, but I really didn't. You know, I was still playing the victim. I was still blaming people. I was, the prosecutor misstated my net worth at sentencing. And I, you know, how dare he do that? He lied in court. You know, I was saying all these things until the moment I accepted responsibility and a fully extreme responsibility. And I said to myself, if I hadn't knocked that first domino down, if I hadn't made that choice to hit the enter button on my computer to start my fraud and the thousand choices that followed it to keep the fraud going for 10 months, a prosecutor wouldn't even know my name and he wouldn't have had an opportunity to make that mistake. And now that I think about it, I realized that he pulled the number off of a report that was supposed to be thrown out. He just made a careless mistake. He wasn't being malicious. He wasn't being anything, you know, and I just, when I, when I accepted responsibility, that gave me freedom. Then I accepted that everything is a choice and that I can choose to make something of this. I can choose to give the suffering that I've experienced and my wife's experienced, my family has experienced, I can choose to give that meaning. And when I did those three things, like it completely turned everything around. And not too soon after that, Ed and I had that conversation. And that's when I started using, at first my prison sentence, you know, it was like, I have 24 months. I still didn't quite understand good time. I still didn't understand the halfway house. So I just figured I was gonna be there for 24 months. And it was such a burden on me. Then I realized, that it was a gift and it was a gift of time because I don't have a job. I don't have a wife. I don't have their bills still collecting on the outside, but there's nothing I can do about them. All I can do if I choose to is to work on myself and to just go deep on why I made the choices I made. And you know, what, what did I feel that I was missing? What was I trying to fill? What was I trying to replace? And that's, you know, when I started my meditation practice, my gratitude practice, 
my journaling practice. You know, those three things were unbelievably crucial for getting me through prison. And, you know, in all, in all honesty, one of the huge, huge components was your book, Choose Yourself. Mm. My, my wife's cousin knew that I was a, a fan and she sent me Choose Yourself uh, a couple of weeks after I showed up. You know, right after it came out, she sent that to me and it really, it really helped me. And, you know, real quick little fun thing that we would do, I, I lent it to our dishwasher. I worked in the kitchen and I lent it to our, our dishwasher. His nickname was the, uh, the penguin because he walked with, uh, he walked like a penguin. And he, he, he really loved the book, but he would say, hey, my nickname was Smiley. He said, Smiley, let's, you know, let's do the 10 ideas a day. And, you know, we would come up with 10 ways at the time Yelp was really not doing well. So let's come up with 10 ways that we can improve Yelp. Um, I'm a big car guy. Aston Martin was not doing well financially. So I said, let me come up with 10 ways that Aston Martin can become profitable. And, you know, having those things, having those things to do and to think and to have somebody to also partner with, you know, it, it made such a huge difference in, in my sentence. So thank you for that. Oh, that's, that's really nice of you to say. And it's actually really interesting that having kind of a, um, a partner, literally a partner in crime, but like a partner, uh, uh, kind of, um, what do you call it when a, uh, somebody helps you, um, achieve something you're, you're both holding each other accountable, like an accountability partner, accountability partner. Um, yep. And you know, and also it's really a good insight to come up with ideas for others because that helps that gets you out of yourself a little bit, you know, and, and it even gives you hope. Like you could potentially send the ideas to Aston Martin. You could send the ideas to Yelp uh, you know, once you get out or whatever, and there's real action that can happen. And I think action drives ultimately these feelings of, you know, freedom and, and happiness. And I'm sure, I'm sure gratitude, meditation, journaling set the stage because they start to take it out of yourself, but then actually taking action is that, is that next step. And, and it sounds like that's what you were doing. It was absolutely what I was doing. And you actually just listed a bunch of my, what also came out of this was, you know, I, I realized when I was in prison, when I started examining my behaviors, you know, I, I said to myself, I wish there was a filter or a lens that I could put my choices and decisions through that would make life easier. And I kept on journaling over that. And I kept on thinking about it. I said, what is this filter or lens? And that developed into my set of values, which I was able to start getting clarity on those in prison. It wasn't until after prison where I really finalized them, but a couple of my values you listed are action, is taking action because action to me is, it equals joy, you know, and then gratitude is just to be able to find gratitude in prison. It's not the easiest thing to do. And when I could find it at a low point, it really was a game changer. And then freedom is another one of my values. And that's probably might be fairly obvious because I was in prison, but it's something that I, you know, I hold so dear and not just even the physical parameters, but the mental parameters and the mental prisons that we lock ourselves in and just, you Do know, you ever feel now that, that, that you, do you ever feel like encroaching mental prisons happen to you now? Um, and, and what do you do to kind of, you know, freedom obviously is, is really important to you now you've experienced, you know, having every right withheld from you. Um, what do you do now when you feel like, somehow your thoughts are imprisoning you? I try to, I try to come back to neutral. If a thought grabs hold of me, it's going to swing me in mm -hmm. a direction. It's going to be fueled with something. So it's going to be, 
you know, shame is going to, shame's a big one for me. Shame is, you know, that's why I was planning on killing myself was, is the shame was just so all consuming. And even speaking to you now and reliving the stuff with my, with my ex-wife, I can still feel the shame. And, you know, what I'll do is just try to, I will come back to neutral. And I will also remember that these are, these are all things that happened in the past and the past can't be anything other than it is. And I have to accept that. And it's, so it's, it's, it's that bringing myself to neutral. I will, I will journal on it. I will, I will ask myself questions about it. I will ask myself like, what's going on here? Where do I feel it in my body? You know, I'll identify it where I feel it in my body. Um, shame for me is in my, in my stomach, um, goes up into my chest and it, it hits my cheeks and my ears and makes them flush. So I can identify. Was that a meditation practice? That is something that I picked up um, at, through my meditation practice throughout the years, because I've been meditating now for six years. So as I kind of read more about it and, and get more into it, I still think I'm a complete newbie at it. But it, well, that's but every, everybody is a newbie at it, right? So yeah. So I guess that's a vipassana technique uh, to sort of see where different feelings and emotions hit your body, and then you know identify it as that it's a, a feeling in the body, and it's not me. You know, identifying it in the body and realizing that it's not, it's not me. And you know, a lot of a lot of times, I wish I could say that I I get myself out of those prisons pretty quickly, but there are times where something can grab a pretty serious hold of me and, you know, it'll, 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 it'll keep me for a while. And then it's just, it's just journaling and really trying to come at it with a little bit of a different brain that created the, the feeling in the first place, if that makes sense, is not trying yeah. to utilize that same brain that, that brought that up. Well, I, I always wonder this and I'm, I'm curious what you think, like the brain is just, an organ. It's just a, like a muscle we have just like our arms and legs. Like, and so we use our brain for certain purposes, uh, to, to get food in clever ways and, and so on. But it really, we always often identify the brain with who we are, but it's really just, again, a, a tool we use. Do you think, what do you think of this statement? True or false? Do you think it's possible to think your way out of despair? Huh? That is an interesting one. I think, I, th I almost think you have to feel your way out of despair. Hmm. I don't know if you can, because despair is such an emotional thing. I don't know that we can think ourselves out of a state of emotional despair. I think we have to emotionally, we have to have an emotional trigger that will pull us out of that. I think trying to beat something intellectually, I know, that's a trap that I fall. I feel like I've fallen into is I you know, feel like I'm a halfway bright guy. So I'll use my intellect to solve emotional problems and it's never worked out for me, but striking it more from an emotional, like what is, what is it that I'm feeling? What is this serving for me? What is this trying to fill? What is this? Cause you know, I feel like when we have those moments, they are, you know, they're trying to tell us something obviously, but they're also, they're, they're serving a purpose of some nature and identifying what that purpose is, you know, and that comes from more of a feeling and not a thinking. Does all that make sense? And so, yeah. And so, so like when you were talking to, to Ed, your, your mentor, and you were saying, you were basically saying in, in so many words, 
I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me. I'm afraid no one's going to date me. I'm afraid uh, I'm going to have nowhere to live. I'm going afraid I'm not going to have any money or be able to get a job. Like, in, in, and he, he, of course, said some kind things and said, you know, you're a blank canvas. But that's also intellectualizing it. Like, you could, that's only going to, you know, get you through this despair for a few seconds, few minutes, few hours, maybe a day. But what do you think it is that actually lifted you up so that you were able to really tackle those fears once you were, once you were released from prison? That's been, so it wasn't even just when I was released. It was in the halfway house. It was an ongoing process for years to work through those fears. They were, they were very, very, very strong. And right. Like he gave you a good analogy, but you still have to do something. It still had to do the work. The analogy was great. And part of the the thing that drove me was that I felt because I had hit such a rock bottom that I have an obligation to share my story with others who feel now how I once felt. And that was, that was fuel that kept me going. So I started writing the book while I was in prison and it took me five years and eight drafts to get it to this, this point. Cause I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> and it no, was, it's, I, I, it, the, the, parts that I've read are very well written. It's very good. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's, you know, that was, it, I think that ties to the action that you were talking about. I had this thing that gave me purpose and sense that I wanted to, and had the obligation to create this book and to get this book and to, to write the best book that I possibly could so that I can help somebody else so that I can be of service. That became, that took a little while for me to realize, but that whole service piece was absolutely huge. And that helped work through the fears as well. You know, it, I think service is key. Like for instance, like, you know, coming up with these ideas for Yelp and then sending them to Yelp is an action. And then immediately starting again with some other set of ideas, those are actions. And even if nothing comes from the actions, it sort of distracts you from, from the prison. It's like you're living in a different world now, instead of prison, when you're, when you're, when you're doing service. It's, it's a different world. There's no bars because as long as you're doing service, you're outside the bars because you're, you're helping someone else. It's so I was, I was able to, they, my fellow inmates found out that I used to be a personal trainer and I was the only trainer in the, in the camp. There were other guys that were training people, but they didn't have an actual training background. They were just doing what they knew to do. So I became a little bit of this training celebrity. I was able to charge a whopping $5 for a half hour session where the other guys were getting $5 for a full hour session. Mm -hmm. But I had, I had at one point, I had seven or eight or maybe even nine clients that I had regular schedule, you know, meetings with that was service. And that got me out of that as well. It was thinking of workouts that I was going to do with these people, thinking about the constraints that some of them have, the injuries that they have. Um, you know, I had one guy that was in really, really rough shape and to come up with workouts for him was a real challenge to be able to work with his physical limitations and yet give him a good workout. So that service piece did help get me out of that prison. And that was really, that was, that was a big part of it as well. So, so like you were, you, you had clients right then. So you were able to, to serve your clients right then you were working on a, a book that, you know, you knew could live beyond you and beyond prison. You were coming up with ideas. So you were exercising that idea muscle, which in itself I, I have found releases, dopamine and, and all the happy chemicals and so on. And, uh, you know, and, and I think the, I think the thinking, the, the, 
meditation and the gratitude sort of sets the stage. It sort of clears the deck, but then doing these actions sort of moves you into this new world in your life, this new dimension where it's not just worrying about uncertainty and worrying if my wife's going to leave me and worrying how long am I going to be in jail? It, it, it frees you. And now also writing the book and doing podcasts like this and giving talks, vulnerability is freedom. Also, nobody can say anything against you. Nobody could say, Hey Craig, I just realized you were in prison. You would be like, yeah, I only talked about it a billion times publicly. You just have to Google me and you'd see. So no one could, no one could get you for that. Like, you know, vulnerability really equals freedom and, and, and expressing that vulnerability. You, you said something, um, I forget which podcast it was with, but it was one of those lines that I absolutely loved and I've used it. I admire you for this. And I'm also a little pissed that I didn't come up with it on my own. Um, you, you could use it now. You <laughs> could use it for, as your own. The vulnerability is a currency of freedom. Um, and yes. I thought that was one of the most brilliant ways to articulate it. And you just nailed it. it so I, so some of that shame was still very prevalent all the way up. That TED Talk that I delivered was February 8th of 2020. So it was just this year. And I still had, I felt really good about a lot of my, my life, but I still carried a little bit of shame. When I got off that TED stage, it all vanished because I left it all on the stage. And my, I have to say my entire life shifted after that TED because of everything that you just said, of the vulnerability of, you know, I used to, when I would talk to people, I would say, oh, wait, if I go on a date, I have to tell them my story. And my story, I always said it with such shame and regret. Now, when I say, I still say my story, the words are still the same, but there's no shame. There's no regret. It's because I'm vulnerable and because I put myself out there and, I, and I'm trying to do something with this that nobody can. I no longer judge myself, so I don't open the door for others to judge me. Yeah. And so, so what have you, so you got out of prison. When did you get out of prison? Got out of prison. I got out of prison in November, 2015. And that's when I went to the Brooklyn halfway house. So you were there about like 13 or 14 months. It was 15. Like it was 15, 15 months. Yep. And, uh, uh, was that amazing? Like just walking out of prison, even though you knew we were going to a halfway house, probably was a lot more freedom than being in jail. Oh my God. You have no idea what it was like. My dad met me. He had coordinated with my aunt who had some of my clothes to put jeans on, to put my clothes on for the first time was such a luxury. It felt so good to wear jeans and my sweatshirt instead of prison greens or the gray sweatsuits that we you know, had to wear. That felt so great. And it was to be out leaving legally and, and in a car, you know, I hadn't been in a car for 15 months. It was just, it was surreal. And the halfway house, I hated it with a passion, but I got to leave. And so I loved that. You know, the halfway house was not, the halfway house was not fun. Well, why is that? I mean, not that I expected it to be fun, but. <laughs> Wasn't the party that you were expecting? The, yeah. one of the worst parts about it is, A, you can leave. I love the fact that I could leave the halfway house, but you have to come back and to relinquish freedom every day. Each time. Each time that hurt. And the halfway house was also, the staff are not the nicest people. They are really, I mean, there's a couple that are nice, but for the most part, they're not nice. They treat all of us like crap. 
and the environment isn't great. My first room that I was in was in with 16 other guys. It was next to the smoking area and they insisted on keeping the window open. So just smoke is billowing in big giant brown stain in the middle of the carpet. And, and I can't blame the guys for this, but there are guys that had 20 year sentences. They're out and they're seeing a cell phone for the first time. And so they're on their phones, but they're on their phones at two in the morning, three in the morning, all night long. Everybody's on their phones. They're so excited to be out. And again, can't blame them because that's amazing. Who are they talking to? They've been in jail for 20 years. <laughs> I don't know. They all had somebody to talk to though. It didn't stop. So it was just, just so much noise, sleeping like crap. The beds were horrible. The environment was just, there was a lot of tension in the air. And, you know, it was um tremendous amount of tension, but I was able to, and this was huge, a bed opened up in a smaller room. And I was able to ask the guys who lived in the room if I could move in. And they had watched me and they saw that I was well-behaved and that I was clean. That was actually the room where the former consigliere of, consigliere of the Gambino crime family was in. Wow. So that room was clean. It was quiet. <laughs> we had a TV. Uh, <laughs> you know that that made such a such a huge difference. And then you get a. How long were you in the halfway house? It was a total of six months, but four of those were actually living in the halfway house, and two of them were on the ankle bracelet, where I was living in an apartment. But I had to go back to the halfway house once a week. To um, when you live in a halfway house, they get ten percent of your gross. So I had to go back and pay. And I also had to fill out my entire week schedule of where and what I was going to do so they could track me on the GPS if they wanted to, to make sure that I was in fact at the supermarket at 2 PM on a Tuesday. You know, I had to, I had to map my whole week out. After that, after those two months, was there probation? So I had three years of, in the federal system, it's called supervised release. So I had three years of supervised release, which involved I, I was I was lucky. Um, I didn't have to report to the probation office all that much. But if I wanted to meet my folks in Westchester for lunch, I had to request permission to leave the city. You know, I had to do that. They would call me in for random urine tests, which, you know, I'm not worried about that. I haven't done drugs in 20 something years. But to go into the probation office, it's the weirdest bathroom you've ever seen. It's wall to wall mirrors, including the ceiling. And there's a guy in there watching you. You know, and it's just, you know. wow, you, you've really, I mean, it's an experience. I'm sorry you went through it, but it's definitely a different kind of experience than most people go through. It definitely is. But that makes me think of something. So I had three years of supervised release. I came off May 9th of 2019 and I had, a, I had a party that night. I had dinner with friends and it was really, it was just so much, so much fun. It was talk about freedom talk about freedom. I no longer, I can leave the city when I want. I'm no longer going to get called randomly for drug tests. It, it felt so good. And somebody asked me, they said, you know, going through all this, would you be, would you go back in time and would you change anything? I thought about it for a second. And this was such pure freedom because I could look at them and say, and mean it with a hundred percent assurity. There's not enough money in the world for me to change that experience whatsoever. I would not give up the gifts that I have now for any amount of money in the world or for anything. There's no way. Or, what if you could have this view on the world, but not have to go through that experience? <laughs> I don't. I, like, I, what if you had these memories, but you can go right back now to 2010? No, I wouldn't. I think I think I think I really had to go through it. 
to be the person that I am now. And I, I, you know, I don't nearly make the money that I used to make and it doesn't matter. What do you do now? So I am two things that I do. So I'm a general manager of a gym in the Lower East Side. Um, super grateful for the owner. Um, I had my I had my interview in the prison visiting room. One of my friends in prison is friends with the owner. And he said, Craig's getting out soon. Can you give him a job? He goes, yeah, I'd like to meet him. So guard hooked me up and let me sit on sit in on this visit for five to seven minutes. And the guy, true to his word, you know, I started at the front desk making 12 bucks an hour, but now I'm the general manager, you know, and I make a livable wage to live in Brooklyn and work in the city. And I think that, you know, that says something. But I started at the beginning of quarantine. And, you know, honestly, this is, again, thanks to you is, you know, choosing myself. I, I am now, I, I call myself a reinvention architect. So basically I'm a coach and I help people who, whose lives have fallen apart, rebuild and reinvent themselves. And it's not only people who have gone through prison or whose lives have completely fallen apart, but I work with people who, you know, have a good career, but they're not happy and they're not fulfilled and they want to reinvent their lives and they want to do something new. So I work with them on a coaching aspect and I do a lot of the mindset work and I explore what it is that they want to do. And I understand what the blocks are that are keeping them from doing what they're doing. So at the beginning of quarantine, I launched that and I'm really fortunate. I already have a few clients and I'm loving the work. It's just really, it's just really great. That's awesome because, you know, and it's good timing in the sense that I, I call this, I call this time the great reset because it's not going to be a new normal. We're not going back to normal. Uh, it's just a reset and everybody is allowed to reset now to pursue a dream. And a lot of people will have a mindset, oh, no, I can't make money now at, at this new dream, but, but they can, I mean, you've, you, like, you've proven it. You can do what you love and make money at it. And, and of course it takes time to build up. You might not start making millions a year, but you could eventually make money. And this is a good time. One out of three Americans were, were laid off and uh, from their jobs or furloughed or whatever. And, and they saw that they couldn't trust the corporate system. So it's kind of like you do have to sort of at least have so, start moving in the direction of the things you love and, and monetizing it, even if it makes a little bit less because you'll be so much happier. And, and, and like you've referred to, you, you'll feel, you'll feel freer. I, I, I have an idea for you. I wonder if you've thought about this, which is, uh, why don't you make YouTube videos for workouts you can do in jail? <laughs> That's an awesome idea. That is a really good idea. There's actually, there's a guy, he's got a place in the, in the city. Um, he's been in the post. He's been featured with a lot of things. It's, um, he teaches prison workouts. He was a, you know, he was in prison and he lost a ton of weight. So now he's got this gym and he does all the online classes and he, you know, he, that's exactly what he does. Prison workouts. I mean, I was, I had great workouts in prison. I'm not going to lie. There was definitely a lot of burpees, a lot of jumping rope, um, a lot of making things, you know, totally putting things together that weren't meant to be put together and just creating. I'm, I'm, well, you know, that's how, uh, was it? Joseph Pilates discovered Pilates while in jail. Right, well, he he all the he took apart his bed and all the um, what do you call them? The things that hold the bed together, the springs. He started put, you know using the springs as pressure, you know uh, to you know pulling them or stretching them, and he created Pilates out of these these springs that he pulled apart from the 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 bed and the things in his cell, and that's how he created Pilates. I have I had no idea about that, and it still cracks me up that his last name is actually Pilates. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's still, I'm yeah, still. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah. I was like, that really? That's his last name? It's like if there was a guy named like Mike Yoga, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'd be, it would be weird. But yeah, you you should do that and there's and give courses on that or or uh, train people who are going to go to to. You could also coach people who are going to go to the system. Like you said, it could take up to seven years before you go. I'm sure those people need a lot of help as well. So that guy that I mentioned earlier that helped me get ready for prison, the guy who's got the progressive prison ministries, and he he helps people post prison, pre prison, and while in prison, and he helps people get ready for it. And he was he was um, so invaluable to me in my in my process of you know how to behave even you know telling me what to not do in prison so i already knew the do's and do nots do not walk on somebody's wet floor somebody's mopping the floor do not walk on it big no no stuff like that so there's a call every monday night that you know people who have been in the system get on and i join that call as often as i can and i help people on that call and i also without not coaching them um, i do it pro bono there are people that are on the call and they mention something. So I private message them and say, Hey, let's talk this week. And I work with them on, you know, whatever it is that they may be dealing with, you know, right now, somebody who is got sentencing looming in the horizon. And, you know, I know everything that he's experiencing. So we just, we talk it through and I just, it, it, it feels so good to be able to help somebody out because I know what he's feeling. And he's in that uncertainty phase that we were talking about before. And just that, that frightening uncertainty. Yeah. Oh, I can't, I can't even imagine. Um, well, Craig, this has been such an intense talk. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, we always run into each other sooner or later. So I know we'll, we'll be in touch. Uh, you know, you have a book that's going to come out hopefully soon, the blank canvas. Uh, people should watch your TEDx talk. Just Google Craig, C-R-A-I-G, Stanlin, S-T-A-N-L-A-N-D, and they'll find your TED talk. Uh, and videos and so on. I really think you should do these these workouts for jail. You could do either TikTok videos, Instagram videos, YouTube videos, all three, and build a brand around that. And um, you know, maybe even like a newsletter too. Like just every newsletter, one more tip in jail. Like don't walk on someone's wet floor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So probably people would subscribe, even if you do it as a free newsletter, because then you link to your YouTube videos and stuff and you build, you build a brand and you build traffic. Um, I don't know. I can keep coming up with ideas, but I am so happy. We finally were able to, we've been talking about this for, for a year. I'm so happy. We've been able to, to do this podcast and really, really grateful to you. And, um, such an intense story. I felt like crying during the story. So I know it's intense. Are you, are you, are, who, who are you, are you dating? Are you able to date? Were you able to get through that, that hump? That was an interesting hump. So I, right out of prison, when I started working at the gym, I started dating one of the trainers there. Really amazing, amazing girl. Um, she was awesome. We dated for 10 months and it just, you know, fizzled out. It just didn't, it just didn't work. And then I went into a three-year hibernation where I really focused on the book. And I also did a lot of that deep inner work that got me to where I am now. I mean, I really, it kind of became like a monk. And part of it was I really wanted to focus on myself and focus on the book. And the other part was that I was filled with shame and going out on dates was really hard for me because I didn't want to tell people that I was a convicted felon. So it was after just this year, I decided, I said, I'm going to start dating again. I'm going to get myself back out there, start dating in February after the talk, after the TED talk, when I felt the weight lift off my shoulders, I start dating, I start going out. And then what happened on March 16th in New York City? 
Yeah, lockdown. Right. So I had a you know whopping, maybe all total, four weeks, three weeks of dating. But I, I once you know I'm going to start getting back into it because I do have such a different mentality about it and not feeling that same shame that I felt. And now you're totally free of everything, like no supervised release, no random drug tests. They don't call you up. Nothing. Free from everything, and it's unbelievable. Well, Craig, thanks once again. You are a survivor. I I really look up to what what you've been through and what you've done and how you've come through it. And uh, I know you're going to keep on in- increasing the value you deliver to others and just like you just did for, for me and for the, for the listeners of this podcast and hope to get you on here again. And, um, yeah, one last question. This is related to, to working out. I hate working out. <laughs> like I hate burpees. You know, that's when you like, you're standing up and you go down for a quick push up, Right. And then you jump up in the air and then you repeat. That's a burpee. That's oh, a- so so boring and tiring. I like, like, you know, let's say you play a game and you work out that way, like whether it's ping pong or tennis or, uh, I don't like to run, but, um, uh, I don't know. There's, there's sports you could, is like, it feels like a good workout to me. I I don't mind lifting weights so much, but if you just lift weights, it doesn't, I don't know if it really increases your health that much. Um, what I do now in lockdown is, I simply do, I do about like, this is going to sound wimpy to you, but I just, I do a hundred pushups a day. That's what I do. And I walk when I can. That's not wimpy at all. That's awesome. That's incredible. I think that that I was going to say, I think there's such a, and I haven't been a trainer for a very long time. So I know there are plenty of people out there who, you know, would say maybe differently, but I'm a big, I'm a firm believer in something is better than nothing. So walk when you can do your hundred pushups. Um, maybe throw some air squats in there just to get your legs going a little bit. But the idea of playing tennis, I think moving the body is one of the most important things that we can do. And however we move that body, it doesn't matter. I think if you like tennis and you like ping pong, you know, might not be the most cardiovascular workout in the entire world, but it's better than doing nothing. And I think it's just those small incremental steps towards something. You don't have to- Yeah, I got to find those things that are like fun for me. Yeah, do you like racquetball or anything? I mean, you've mentioned a couple yeah. paddle sports. Racquetball. Yeah, I like all those. Yeah, racquetball's intense. I mean, that's like, you know, hey, next, I don't know, if, are you in Florida or are you in the city right now? Right now I'm in Florida, but I'll go back and forth. Yeah, definitely I'll check out your 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 east side gym uh, when I'm back. What's the name? Can you allowed to say the name of the gym? Yeah, absolutely. Ludlow Fitness in the Lower East Side. L-U-D-L-O-W. I'm going to check it out. Well, once again, Craig Stanland, author of the upcoming The Blank Canvas. People should check out your TED Talk. Any other place they can find you? Uh, I would say my website, craigstanland.com. And then my Instagram is where I'm most active, Craig underscore Stanland. Excellent. Thanks so much, Craig. I really appreciate it. Can I say real quick, honestly, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I, I can't express to you how much your work truly has impacted this journey and how much you've, without even maybe your knowing for those many few years, um, how much you've been along for that journey. So I just want to thank you for the work that you have put out and that you do every single day and how you show up every single day. So thank you. I, I really appreciate that, Craig. That means a lot to me. You, I, I, I can't even tell you how much that means, particularly, you know, you've been through a lot, but thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.